the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. Includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888 441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show and it's called Southern Sense and you know you put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com and click on the icon 
for my Patriot food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. Right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie. And welcome back, my co-host, my ever-so-effervescent co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How was the book signing? It was fantastic. Um, They really rolled out the welcome carpet up there in Augusta, Georgia. And I was also in Palatka, um, Florida, like a couple of days later, it's just been fantastic. And um, I have to say, I sure would like to go back there again. And I also want to thank uh, Ernie for um, standing in for me. Yeah. Um, he won't be able to be with us uh, next week, and you have another book signing to go to. And uh, there's a very strong possibility that I may have to skip next Friday's show completely because I may end up at the Trump rally that is going to be right here wow. in South Carolina, just about an hour north of me in North Charleston in an area they call Goose Creek, which is just, um, uh, oh, God, brain fart. <laughs> I had some friends living in that part of town, too. But it's the north end of Charleston, uh, so he's going to be at the Coliseum up there, Um it, that's a big place, too, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm waiting for an answer to find out yes or no. So, Well, there's nothing like there. a Trump rally. I went to one in Panama City earlier this year, and it was just out of sight, out of sight. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a long day, but it's worth it. Well, if I get in there, I'm hoping to get in with a press pass so I don't have to stand in the lines. And I can just go the shortcut in and get directly in there and move around as freely as I can. And maybe even interview some people as I walk around and make that part of the show that I'll put together uh, after the rally. We'll see. Maybe that I can even broadcast some of it live from the rally. You know, if I get yeah. my phone hooked up right, I may be able to do like a little Facebook live on that one. That'd be interesting. It's, it would be. It's going to be an experience. So there's no guarantee I'll be there. It's a possibility. So, like I said, I'm just waiting for them to get back to me and saying yes or no on the tickets. Um, I've got a call into a friend also to see if she can get me in. So, we'll I'm telling you, that guy got more energy than all those Democrats combined together. I don't know where Trump get it from. Oh, as, but he is energized. As a matter of fact, we are speaking. He is supposed to be at a rally uh, over in Las Vegas. And let's see. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to pull it up on my other computer, and no, they got some guy talking, so not yet, not yet, folks. So anyway, we got ourselves an exciting show for those that have joined us. want to give a special shout-out to our friend Sweet Sue that's listening in the studio, our friends here over on Blog Talk Radio, as well as those that are over on Facebook uh, watching and listening in also. want to welcome everyone. Um, We've got to start off the show with RNC National Spokesperson Liz Harrington. She'll join us for the very first part of the show. And then Deanna Lorraine. 
she looks like she may be the one Republican that may be able to unseat Nancy Pelosi. She's running in California District 12 against Nancy Pelosi. And then we're going to close off the show with Louisa Grieve. Uh, she's the director of global advocacy for the uh, Uyghur Human Rights Project. And uh, that is, that is uh, some story there. Some story. Anyway. Enough said. We've got a lot to talk about. A lot that is going on, Curtis. Man, it's going to be a busy, busy day. i got to apologize. My computer crashed on me just as we were getting ready to sign in. So... <laughs> You see me dabbing my face. I was sweating buckets trying to get back online. And then when I did get back online, I couldn't call in because my Skype wasn't opening up. Oh, if it's not one thing, it's, a, it's something else. Right, Curtis? And, and Yeah, and I see uh, some kind of pattern here in the chat room, what's supposed to be the chat room. I got um, a pattern of microphones. I don't even see the chat room. So I guess that's huh. another BTR um, little extra there. Well, try refreshing your screen and see if that helps. Okay. Otherwise, um, while no. you do that, people that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to be going out to two fallen heroes, Private First Class Brandon J. Krishner and specialist Michael Isaiah Nance. And this is from the phone at the Military Times. And it reads, the Army has identified two U.S. soldiers killed in a reported insider attack. Private First Class Brandon J. Krishner, 20, of Stryker, Ohio, and specialist Michael Isaiah Nance, 24, of Chicago died in Afghanistan while supporting Operation Freedom Sentinel. Both soldiers were members of Company B, 1st Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division, when they were killed by small arms fire. The paratroopers died from wounds sustained in a combat-related incident, according to the Pentagon press release. These young men were true All-Americans and embodied the qualities of selflessness, service, and courage. They answered our nation's call to deploy to Afghanistan, said Colonel Arthur Sellers, commander of the 3rd Brigade Combat Team in a division statement. Our focus is now providing their loved ones with every available resource to help them in this most difficult times, he said. Associated Press reported that an Afghan soldier shot and killed the two U.S. troops in Kandahar. The Afghan soldier was wounded and is in custody, according to officials. Nance joined the Army in January 2017, and Kreshner joined in June of 2018. Both completed basic combat training, advanced individual training, and airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia before being assigned to the 1505 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Nance was an automatic rifleman, while Kreshner was a rifleman. Both soldiers' awards and decorations include the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star Medal, the Army Service Ribbon, the Afghanistan Campaign Medal, the Global War on Terrorist Service, 
and the combat infantry badge and basic parachute badge. Kreshner is survived by his wife back home in Fayetteville, the large community surrounding Fort Bragg. Nance is survived by his mother and father in Illinois. And this is from the Chicago Tribune. Army Specialist Michael Isaiah Nance of Chicago had only been in Afghanistan about two weeks when he was killed in combat, his great-uncle said. His mother was in Delaware retrieving his remains. Nance, 24, who grew up in the South Side, was remembered by his uncle Shay, his grandfather's brother, Keenan Forrest. Nance deployed July 12th, Forrest said, and on Monday, after the funeral of Nance's great-grandfather, a Korean War veteran, the soldiers came to the house to notify his mother Nance had been killed while serving in Operation Freedom Sentinel in the Orangansk province in Afghanistan. The unfortunate part is we had laid his great-grandfather to rest. We buried my dad Monday morning, and then they came to the house Monday evening with this news. It was like the worst day in our family's history, Forrest said. Nance convinced his mother, Sean Gregory, to give her blessing for him to join the Army. His great-grandfather, Sam Forrest, was a Korean War veteran, and as long as anyone in the family can remember, Isaiah, as the family calls Nance, wanted to join the Army and become a paratrooper. It was always, Mom, I want to join the Army, and she'd say, Nope. Then next year, I want to join up, and again, Nope. Over and over like that for years, Forrest said. Finally, she decided to let him go. Forrest said Nance enrolled at a university in Florida for a few years, in part, he believed, to convince his mother to let him join up. Asked what Nance studied, Forrest chuckled and said, probably studying how to get into the Army, knowing him. Pentagon spokesman Jessica Maxwell said the attack was under investigations. Nance celebrated his 24th birthday with family in Chicago on June 1st while on leave, Forrest said. Nance's mother then took her son on a trip to Europe where they had visited London, Paris, and Croatia. She wanted people to know he died doing what he enjoyed doing, which was his lifelong dream of being in the Army, Forrest said. Forrest said Nance loved wrestling, anime, and playing video games with his 13-year-old brother. When it came to food in Chicago, he'd choose soul food every time. Nance's cousin Trevor Harris said Nance was energetic, athletic, funny, humble, all of the things you want your kid to be. He didn't like to see others sad, which is part of what makes this so difficult. He was the one to lift everyone's spirit in a time like this. Farah said Gregory enrolled Nance at a high school in the northwest suburbs in an effort to get him away from the life in his neighborhood. He became a foodie and a travel connoisseur. After his recent travels, he already had his next destination in mind, Ireland. He loved to mess around with his grandfather, Ray Williamson, especially around family. They're just goofing around like big kids. He was kind of the joker everyone laughing. The only time he exhibited any quiet behavior or any reservations is when he learned 
he was being deployed. He had a nervous energy about it. It was his first deployment. So going into something for the first time, it was just that he knew what to expect and what could happen, Forrest said. He had more courage than me, he added. We are thanking God for his strength and where we are now. We all just keep going and praying, being strong for her, Gregory, Forrest said, and paused. It's just unimaginable. And this is from the Daily Beast. The latest military widows in war included a pregnant 19-year-old who first suffered a tragic loss as a toddler when she watched her father and strangle her mother with the winter scarf before speeding away, leaving the child alone with the body. Two and a half hours later, the police arrived at the house in West Toledo, Ohio, to notify the family that George Ream had died after deliberately driving head-on into a tractor-trailer. The two-year-old Grace Ream answered the door and led them to the body of Susan Ream in the dining room. The police understood that a murder had preceded the suicide. The little girl told us a police supervisor was later quoted as saying she was there when it happened. Her brother and sister were older and at school. One blessing was that the three siblings stayed together. Another was the kindness and support shown by their neighbors. Lots of caring people helped us through it, recalls her brother Aaron Ring, who was eight at the time. Grace proved to be just as caring and compassionate despite the early horror. She has a big heart, her sister Ashley Ream Brown told the Daily Beast. She has a lot to give. And Grace seemed on her way to a happy life when she met a gallant young paratrooper, Private First Class Brandon J. Kreshner of the 82nd Airborne. They were married on January 28th of 2019, six days after the 16th anniversary of the murder-suicide, allow it to define her. But there was a war that was approaching its 18th anniversary dating back to 9-11, when she was just one and her husband-to-be was just two. On March 28th, the Department of Army announced that Brandon's unit will be deployed to Afghanistan in the summer. March was also the month when Grace Kirshner became pregnant. The due date was December 26, 2019, the day after Christmas. If you're not here, I'm not here. You two complete me. Family is everything. Fatherhood and being a husband is everything. If I don't have that, I have nothing. Private First Class Brendan J. Kreshner wrote her. On June 8th, the couple joined family members at the Ohio home of Brandon's mother for the combination 20th birthday celebration for Brandon, a baby shower for Grace, and a gender reveal. They would have a son. They already had a name, Caleb. The gathering was also a goodbye party. Brandon departed with his unit for Afghanistan in early July. Grace chose to stay with family in Ohio rather than remain in the suddenly empty apartment where they had been living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, the home of Fort Bragg and the 82nd Airborne. She posted on Facebook a photo of their two hands clasped together, his right and her left, the fingers intertwined. Brings back memories, he wrote in a comment. Can't wait to come home and see you and Kalen after all of this. 
She would later post on Facebook some of the messages they exchanged. You matter more to me than I matter to me, Brandon wrote. You and the baby make me who I am now. If I don't have you two, I swear I would never be able to pull myself out of any sorrow ever again. If you're not here, I'm not here. You two complete me. Family is everything. Fatherhood and being a husband is everything. If I don't have that, I have nothing. He also wrote, I can't even begin to explain how much life I was missing out on before we were married and expecting our son. I had thought I was all that, but I wasn't anything. He said he would be home in March and in the meantime would be doing his duty. I'm just so grateful that I'm doing what I've always wanted and that I have the best family I could ever ask for. You being my wife and Caleb on the way is the biggest blessing I've ever received. I couldn't be more thankful for what I have now. At another moment, he wrote, we're going to be great parents. Grace replied, for sure. He wrote, it's going to be the best thing I'll ever do to be a father to that boy and a husband to my Gracie. And she wrote, I'm glad God had me wait for you. He responded, I can say the exact same thing, Gracie. Grace updated her profile on Facebook with a tender selfie of her standing with her shirt partly raised, her right hand spread on her bare belly. That same day, Brandon posted a photo of President John F. Kennedy walking with his daughter Caroline when she was a toddler. The accompanying JFK quote read, Let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer. answer. Let us not sit seek to fix the blame for the past. Let us accept our own responsibility for the future. Also that day, Brandon also posted a 1989 photo of the Soviet division leaving Afghanistan in defeat. Three days later, on July 26th, he posted a new article headlined, Taliban says deal on U.S. troops pulled out from Afghanistan is near. Brandon added a comment. We'll see about that, he wrote. Not looking too promising over here. On July 29th, back in Ohio, Grace went with Ashley and her sister's kids to an animal shelter. Grace saw an impossibly cute gray and white tabby kitten, and she took a picture of it that he sent to Brandon. He did not respond. She said, something isn't right. Brandon would have gotten hold of me. He goes to bed in about an hour, Ashley recalled. Two hours later, Somebody sent Grace a screenshot of a posting of the 82nd Airborne Facebook page saying two soldiers had been killed in Afghanistan. We just kind of knew in the bottom of our hearts what happened, Ashley recalled. Grace then got a call from her landlord in North Carolina reporting that the police had been to her apartment. She knew what that meant. A casualty officer and a chaplain had made an official notification in person to Brandon's mother. Grace was told via a phone call. Brandon had been shot to death along with 24-year-old specialist Michael Isaiah Nance of Chicago in an insider attack by an Afghan soldier who was supposed to be an ally. Brandon had been in Afghanistan for less than a month. Brandon's funeral was held on August 10th in Bryan, Ohio, at the gymnasium at the local high school. He had attended there in the class of 2018, and made an entry in his senior memory book. 
Throughout my life, I have one huge goal. That one was to enlist in the Army as an infantryman. And I achieved that goal on April 25, 2017. It was without a doubt the proudest day of my life, he had written. I am very proud to be an American. I believe that whatever cause America believes in, I have an obligation to believe in because I am a patriot. If I die in a combat zone for America, I do not call it a tragedy. I call it glory. It was buried in Evansport Cemetery. The 82nd Airborne's Honor Guard accorded him full military honors. On the day her husband was killed, Grace had undergone a sonogram. She posted a photo of it as her new profile picture the day that Brandon's flag-covered coffin was carried off the plane at the military mortuary in Dover, Delaware. The sonogram was labeled Kreshner Grace. The image of, was of life, fiercely challenging death. Today's show is dedicated to Private First Class Brandon J. Kreshner and Specialist Michael Isaiah Nance. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we also dedicate this show to also the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. God bless each and every one.
Back. We're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Launch Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Bluetooth. Oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, oh man, so much to start talking about. Guess what? Guess who's in trouble? Guess who's in trouble? We've got two of the the gals on the squad that are in trouble. First, AOC. Um, I had posted well, she on Twitter before. that she has 19. I had posted on uh, Twitter that she has 19 challenges, but I was incorrect. Uh, she's got 12 Democrats challenging her, and how many Republicans? Uh, at least three are also. So you got three primarying, but she's got 12 others she's going to be primarying against. So that's unlucky 13. So it's possible AOC may become a one-hit wonder. Good Wouldn't rich. that be wonderful? I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. I mean, she's, she's she's out in the stratosphere with her ideas. They're not compatible with uh, this Republic. Well, you got to remember, she also got voted in with the lowest voter turnout. Uh, no one was really excited about this election, and she managed to skate in because no one was really paying much attention. You know, the New Yorkers kind of like took apathy and said, hey, uh, we don't like anyone, so we're just not going to vote. So she got her her posse together and blanketed the area. So the only person they knew about on the ballot was her. Well, you know? maybe they'll turn out this time so, since they had, had one full term to um to learn about her. <laughs> but if she's got 12 fellow Democrats primary against her, that goes to say something about people not being happy with what she's doing in her district. So that, that is, so is a good woo. That's a good wahoo. That's her good. district yes. and her country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, finally, we've been talking about this ever since Ilian Omar showed up on the scene it the, the, the stories have been going out there yeah everyone knew about it and now all of a sudden it's like oh wait a minute lamestream media finally picked up on what we were talking about for more than a year that uh 
they are now doing an investigation into Ilhan Omar uh, about immigration fraud, and suddenly this minister, uh, this female minister that married him, has put a zipper on it. She's not talking. She wants nothing to do with this. Well, she can't help it. it. It's, she it's married them. She's got some explaining to do. I've known that they were brother and sister. Depends upon how they presented themselves. And if it's, and that's incest. That's illegal. Not At least in this country. Not only did she commit immigration fraud, she committed incest. And now, yet, didn't, she get married, no didn't she get married before she came here, or did that happen after she came here? I think it happened before. I believe it was before, before she possibly emigrated another here. Country. It's probably yeah, I think more it was black. In, uh, England. Yeah. No, I think it was in England. I think uh, it was. Say, yep. um, yes. If anyone else knows, it's been a while since I looked at all the information on that. But if I remember correctly, um, she was married in England because there was pictures of her, her brother, and her husband at the time together, the three of them. And then when they came here to the United States, there's also pictures of the three of them are, uh, hanging out together. Uh, well, so where it, is it's he strange. yet? I never see him. I, I don't know. Hmm. I don't Probably know. Probably hanging out at the Clinton Foundation. Supposedly <laughs> she she divorced him after she married her brother. I think it was like a year or so after she married her brother. She finally decided to divorce her first husband. Very I interesting. I know how that works. And oh, that happens in the military a lot. <laughs> they marry these young ladies from overseas. They come here and then they divorce them. But they mar- they were married. They became citizens. Mm. Well, her brother husband uh, is getting something like a quarter million dollars from AOC, not AOC, um, Ilhan Omar, to keep his mouth shut. That's part of the divorce settlement. Can you? Where the heck is she getting a quarter million dollars from? She's a sitting men- member of Congress. As far as we know, she never really had any sort of a legitimate job. So where the heck did she get a quarter of a million dollars? George Soros. And how she... George. Oh, I don't know. I don't <laughs> Well, we got a caller coming in on the line, and let me see if I can get this in if my computer behaves. Uh, Eric Code 770, you're on the air live with Southern Sense. Who am I speaking to? Thank you for taking my call. It's Sarge here, Annie, and it's been too long. Yes, it has been. Isn't this really sweet, bittersweet, that Ilian Omar is finally having his come up and that it's finally being revealed about her immigration uh, fraud and her Oh, Annie, I've known about it for months, and I was wondering when everyone else was going to start glomming onto it. Because, as we all know, they are incredibly incurious about any potential scandal involving any Democrat, and the more liberal they are, the more they lack all curiosity. But, of course, they need to know immediately whether or not Sarah Palin was actually Trig Palin's mother. In fact, they had to camp out on her doorstep. Now, when you ask a question about Barack Obama's presence at Occidental College 
or anything about his birth certificate or any of the other innumerable anomalies in his background, thou shalt not mention. I forget who the philosopher was who said, if you want to know the state of freedom in your country, take a look at who you're not allowed to criticize or examine. That tells you everything you need to know. But Absolutely. I found something that's even more curious than that, Annie. And get this. Are you familiar with the New Way Forward Act that the Democrats that? are putting forward in Congress? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Now, yes, just think about it for a minute. I don't know if this is a coincidence. It probably is. It's probably something mean to do. Maybe they accelerated it now that these things about Omar have come to light. But every single violation that potentially Omar stands accused of will not be grounds for her to be deported if this act was become law, which, of course, now is incomprehensible, given the fact that the Senate is held by the Republicans and the White House is held by uh, Obama and, it, I mean, um, uh, Trump, Trump, and a doggone show ain't going to get no veto-proof majority to send him to any his desk. So that's not going to happen. But I guess they're hoping for a, pres- a, a, a Democrat Senate, House, and President, and they're going to fundamentally transform this country so we can never get rid of creatures like Ilan Omar, no matter what sort of criminality they're involved in. What is even worse in that act is that if you deported someone, that act would allow them to return. And they, yes. they must be a we got to pay for it. Uh, absolutely. It's yeah, beyond belief that. that any American citizen could even conceive of such a thing. But here we are, because we are experiencing the modern-day Democratic Party is a party not just of Marxism, but of cultural Marxism. They want to expropriate everything that properly belongs to the traditions and history of this country and expropriate it to others to whom it does not belong. And citizenship is amongst the foremost things they wish to fundamentally transform. And then our guns. Well, it's kind of simultaneous um, effort, actually. I think it's going hand in hand. But look, we just have a president who clearly, by every definition of the word of a natural-born citizen, is not. Every time the Supreme Court ever gave a definition in any of their uh, findings relating to citizenship, even though they never dealt with Article Two, they never said, a natural-born citizen had anything but two, count them, two citizen parents and was born in one of the 50 states of the Union. Absolutely. But we're not allowed to talk about it. So why shouldn't no, we say, no, no. look, if we're going to allow uh, uh, someone who may even have been an illegal alien become president, who are we to stop anybody from anything? True. <laughs> just, just forget about it. You know, tell the cops to go home. We don't need you anymore. Uh, because no matter what, we're going to have complete and total anarchy. Talking about complete and total anarchy, because you are a retired cop, just like I am. Um, did you catch this, that the Supreme Court in Oregon has ruled that law enforcement officers must stick to questions reasonably related to the reason for a traffic stop and can't ask questions that could lead to discovery of other crimes? Uh, the ruling what? will prohibit officers from turning a traffic stop into a fishing expedition, as as they say it, for more no, no. serious offenses. The ruling is before... officers from asking... Oh, wait, hang on. No, this, go is, ahead. this is the kicker, Sarge. The ruling bed's officers from asking questions about the presence of guns 
or drugs unless it's related to the reason for the stop. Now, you and I know you can pull someone over for broken taillight, and if you don't find out whether or not that guy's got a gun, you're dead. Well, look, uh, as, a police, as a state policeman in Illinois, uh, yeah, I was free to pull over a vehicle simply to check their license and registration. I mean, I needed no other reason than that. None. I mean, legally. Now, I would like to know, what state was this in again? Oregon. Oregon, well, yeah. Okay, now, I would like to have read their... I wondered if they found this in any provision in their Constitution. Because let's face it, some states do have more restrictions on law enforcement officers with regard to traffic stops. Because there's nothing in the United States Constitution that forbids a state from enacting more protections and more restrictions on government. You just can't go below a certain threshold. So not being familiar Constitution of Oregon, I'd be hesitant to state on this case. But I'm willing to surmise, and just for the sake of this discussion, that this decision is not found or bound by any provision of law in the state of Oregon. It's simply those jurists' personal preferences. And if it is, then the uh, uh, local entities of government that are opposed to this should appeal this to uh, the various federal courts of appeals and all the way to the United States Supreme Court if necessary. Now, if there's, a, if there's a state constitutional provision or even a state law that restricts law enforcement officers, okay, I'm not, you know, that's why I won't live in Oregon, okay? I'm not moving to Oregon. That's the reason why. But I, I'm betting, Annie, that there isn't. I'm willing to bet, too. So I'd like to see this challenged up to the Supreme Court. <clears throat> I really would. This this puts every single cop that pulls a vehicle over in jeopardy. They're unable yeah. to defend themselves without finding out what they're facing. And all you well, need is one dead cop. Annie, think for a minute. If, in fact, this is not founded in any provision in Oregon law... This is actually a restriction on the police officer's First Amendment rights, if you think about it. Absolutely. Now, Sarge, I've got my guest in on the phone striking up a conversation with someone that you've pulled over for a traffic offense. Sarge, I've got to mute you for now uh, because I've got my guest in on the line, and she's only got 15 minutes with us. So I'm going to put you mute, Sarge. All right. All right. And let's bring aboard the – RNC National Spokesperson Liz Harrington back to the show. Good afternoon, Liz. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? I am doing fine. I'm I'm thrilled because now we've got the Trump rally here on the twenty uh, the twenty eighth. Uh, who's going to be up in North Charleston, just right by me? And I am praying I can get in. Fantastic. Yeah, you got to go. It's, and he's doing one right now in Vegas. He, the, the guy never quits. He's just added that one to the calendar. Uh, yeah, you got to go if you can make it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've got it up on C-SPAN right now on the other computer, but I've got it recording on my TV so that after I get off air, I can sit down and watch it. It could be between <laughs> that and the NASCAR race. <laughs> could be one That's great. Oh, speaking, <laughs> of NASCAR, speaking of NASCAR race, uh, he took a huge hit from the left because he dared – to show up at the Daytona 500. How dare he? And then he did a, a, a pace lap 
He's the grand marshal. He's the one with Melania that looks so elegant out there to go, gentlemen, start your engines. I, I want to do that one day. That is, that's my bucket list thing. And then grand marshal, after they do that, they do a pace lap to lead the cards, the cars to the, the start of the race. You know, he's a VIP guest, but how dare he? He's using the limos to make a political statement. I didn't hear any politics. Did you? No, I heard love of America. I mean, I heard chance of USA. I mean, I, I love that criticism when, yeah, we do pay for it. So let's get to see it, right? Let's see it in action. And it's awesome to see that entrance on Air Force One. Uh, talk about an entrance for President Trump, but then being the grand marshal and doing the lap. And it was just, it was really, really special and neat. And it was great to see the reception from a lot of the different NASCAR drivers who said, you know, President Trump couldn't have been more nicer, uh, you know, shook our hands, took selfies, answered whatever we asked. And that's the type of guy he is. And this wasn't the first time he's been to the Daytona 500, which I love about President Trump, too. This was, I think, his fourth or fifth time. He had already been, but his first time as president, of course. And it, it's just great because he is a man of the people. Uh, he loves this country, the flyovers, uh, the beautiful national anthem. There was just so much celebration going on. And, you know, added bonus if it makes – uh, a few liberals lose their minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just hear the heads explode. And, of course, he gets the biggest criticism out of the rag, the New York Times. I mean, can can they get any more left? And what is this with posting an editorial by the second-in-command of the Taliban? What are, <laughs> they are in collusion with the enemy. It's crazy. The, what's happened to the media, because it's not just the New York Times, I mean, it's almost universal across the board for mainstream media. Uh, they have one value now, and it's, you know, whatever Trump says, whatever Trump does, they take the opposite. That's all, that, that's their only guiding principle, and it, it puts them in very odd positions, <laughs> like defending terrorists, defending the honor of uh, al-Baghdadi and fact-checking the president of whether this terrorist monster was actually whimpering and crying when when he went and blew himself up cowardly and killed two children along with him. I mean, you got to – you would think you would maybe take a step back and look in the mirror and have some self-reflection when you're taking the – you're acting as the PR arm for terrorists just because you can't stand who we voted for. It's absolutely amazing to see the new lows of the media that almost happen on a daily basis. Uh, but, you know, they, they can't help themselves. But so many people have tuned out. So many people don't read them anymore. They don't trust what they say. They've pushed conspiracy theories for over two years now about President Trump and Russia it's it's been a mess for them, and I, I they've lost so much credibility that I just don't even know if they're able to get any of that back. I I don't see how they can. You know, the the really bad thing about this is I grew up uh, on Long Island. Uh, we had the Long Island Press, and on Sundays my dad would get the New York Times, 
And I'd see him sitting there in the backyard reading the New York Times. And sometimes I'd go and, jo- and join him. And it was a good memory. But now what I see what the paper has devolved into, it is no longer the paper of the people. It's not of the news as it should have been. It's now just, it, it's just opinion pieces that are full of claptrap. But that said, you know, I'm really buoyed this election season because after, right after you get off, uh, Deanna Lorraine is going to be coming on. She's running uh, in the Republican primary, and it looks like she will be the one that will challenge Nancy Pelosi for her seat. So I'm really thrilled. But this season, we have a record number of publicans running. Um, in 2019, 781 Republicans filed paperwork for the House. That's up from uh, only 593 in 2017. So I think uh, the Republicans are really, really fired up on taking back the House. What do you think? Absolutely. I think we saw a huge surge after the Democrats really abused their power and wielded a phony sham manufactured impeachment uh, to try to damage an incumbent president going into his election year. Uh, We saw a huge surge, not only of donations, we had a million dollars per day pouring in the last 10 days of that uh, complete debacle and waste of our taxpayers' uh, dollars and time, but we've seen a huge surge also in people filing for office. I think I saw a number as high as 1,000 candidates after the impeachment push total um, are now registered or signing up, uh, filing their paperwork to run for office. And that's great because we want, we need great candidates who are fired up, who are passionate, who love this country, and are willing to take a stand. And we've seen that. We've seen just so much energy in response to not just the Democrats' complete overreach and abuses and hysteria, but the amazing accomplishment and the leadership, despite all those attacks, that President Trump has been able to do. And it's inspiring. We are united. And we know how important it is. I mean, when you have the Democrats calling for this very anti-American agenda, uh, government takeovers of private industry, hiking taxes, to, into oblivion, I mean, complete, out-of-control, big government, socialist policies. We have to take a stand. And, of course, we saw what happens when um, we get a little complacent and we let the Democrats take the House. We see what they do with their power. Uh, we can't let that continue. And there's so much more to be done. I mean, we we know President Trump's the real deal. We know he's following through every single day, putting putting the country first. And look at this economy. Look at the the walls going up. Look at the new trade deals. Look at the dead terrorists. Look at all of these things that have been happening under President Trump's leadership. There's so much more to be done, and we need the House in order to do that. So we're very optimistic. Uh, it all starts with those candidates getting involved uh, right away, and so we're we're looking forward to that. And I think there's going to be a lot of coattails from the successes of President Trump at the top of the ticket uh, that we can take back the House. Well, from your lips to God's ears. But I, I love watching these uh, presidential debates uh, with the Democrats. And now that it's a smaller field, it's 
so much more fun. You end up playing a drinking game. Like how many times can they step on, on their own feet, much less each other's? And here goes Bloomberg in there thinking he's going to buy his way into the presidency. Uh, I'm not doing all the all the, the primaries. I'm just doing these specific ones. I think I can get all the votes I need to win the presidency. And boy, did he get slapped down. I think within the first Two words out of Elizabeth Warren's mouth. <laughs> Little Mike became even smaller. It became Mini Mike. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, the arrogance of this man who, you know, yeah, it's not so easy, is it, uh, Michael, Little Michael? Because, you know, he's already <laughs> outspent what President Trump spent total throughout the 2016 campaign, because he didn't need to waste all of his money. President Trump had a winning message. He had an idea for the country. He wanted to restore America's greatness. He wanted to get immigration and secure our border. Uh, He wanted to bring some common sense and stop shipping our jobs overseas and putting every other country before our own. I mean, these are common sense things, and he ran on it, and more importantly, now he's delivering on it. And what what are these candidates even running on? I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, it was it, it was at least more entertaining because they finally were taking shots at each other. Uh, but this was the first debate where you didn't have their manufactured distractions of their phony impeachment. Impeachment wasn't mentioned. There was hardly a, a mention of Russia. There was no Russia hysteria. What, no Ukraine. Ukraine wasn't mentioned. So what are you left with? You're left with a socialist millionaire frontrunner who honeymooned in the Soviet Union vowing to eliminate all natural gas jobs, which includes millions of high-paying, amazing energy work that has made us energy independent and, oh, by the way, lowered carbon emissions. And then you have an old, white, 78-year-old, big government billionaire trying to buy the election away from him. I mean, that's why it's a series of contradictions. They have absolutely no message. And that's why the the vacuum that they've left of just being the hate President Trump party, the uh, just complete resistance party, and what what is what did the vacuum leave and what it, what remains far left, big government, socialist policies, radical policies, getting rid of the Electoral College, taxpayer-funded abortion. Every single person on that stage wants to eliminate private health insurance. The only, quote-unquote, debate between them is how quickly they will kill the insurance and the entire private health industry. And there's no debate. They're all agreeing with the same things. They're just tearing each other apart personally and you know i must say it's kind of fun for us to watch but if i was a democrat (laughs) i'd be even more nervous than they already were after their disasters in iowa they're looking for another disaster potentially in nevada tomorrow i mean they they of course they're terrified because they know they they really just have nobody that can beat president trump or this amazing economy and these amazing accomplishments well, I'm going to be completely politically incorrect because someone sent me a mime after Biden's Iowa debacle, and it was like he's 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 going. How did I lose in Iowa? I mean, 
I lost to a communist, a gay guy, and a fake Indian. Since when did the village people enter the race? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing that this was supposed to be this was the most diverse field, right? And they were supposed to, you know, be the party of diversity, and they all dropped out before there were even votes cast. And now nobody's dropping out because this is the everybody gets a trophy primary. You have, uh, you know, people in second place claiming first place, people in third place claiming first place, and of course. Joe Biden, which I didn't even mention because you forget he's even running. I mean, this fifth place in New Hampshire, and he's, he hasn't, he doesn't have the dignity, the self-respect uh, to just drop out in shame. I mean, it's embarrassing. This is a guy who's been running for president for 33 years, has yet to win a single primary or caucus. But they stay in because they know they don't have any attractive candidate. Bernie Sanders lost half of his vote, voter base in New Hampshire, and they are becoming a fringe party, and none of those candidates are attractive to the American people. None of them are compelling. They know no, none of them have the track record, the accomplishments, the experience, or anything that can, they can wow. hold a candle to just three short years. Think about what President Trump's been able to do in such a short amount of time. And then you have some of these people who have been in Washington for decades uh, and have done absolutely nothing uh, Liz, to benefit the lives of the American people. Liz, yes. do you think that um, Hillary would ever play second fiddle to Bloomberg or <laughs> any <laughs> other man besides <laughs> Bill? I don't Bubba? think so. I mean, I, what a joke. This is supposed to be all the gray matter, right? He, he, you know, ridiculed our nation's great farmers. I'm the daughter of a dairy farmer. I took personal offense to his absurd comments. But, you know, I thought, I thought Bloomberg was supposed to be a guy with the gray matter. And this week, he, his campaign apparently floated the idea of Hillary Clinton as his running mate, which is the worst idea, political idea I've ever heard for a campaign. And the bigger mistake that Bloomberg made was allowing himself to appear on that debate stage. Why would he want the voters to see who he is? Just keep, you know, trying to buy the election. Keep with your slick, you know, consultant-tested ads uh, and try to, you know, do your best to stay as far away from the voters as possible. Clearly he has disdain for normal, everyday people. He didn't want to step foot in Iowa or New Hampshire. Why would you allow yourself to be on that debate stage? It was a complete disaster, but he's an arrogant, elitist, out-of-touch billionaire who does no shot at getting this nomination. Oh, absolutely not, because there was a survey that was done. Uh, this was by The Economist, uh, the YouGov survey, and showing that by a 52 to 48 margin, Trump is beating the generic Democrat in the race. Uh with uh, Joe Biden, it's more like 49 to 29. Bloomberg, 47 to 27. And the numbers just get worse and worse as you go down there. And then the survey also included Mitt Romney, and only 21% of Republicans have a favorable rating of Mitt Romney, yeah. uh, especially after that impeachment vote. So the numbers are just definitely just swinging upwards, wildly upwards for Trump. 
Absolutely. His numbers, he just, you know, had his all-time high in Gallup, his all-time high in the real clear politics average. Uh, and, and he's going to keep going up because Democrats, the ones who are running, they've turned off so many people. They've turned off independents. There are millions of disaffected Democrats out there that feel that their party has completely left them behind. And when you're talking about, you know, letting te- domestic terrorists vote from prison, you're talking about not having a border, you're talking about taxpayer-funded health care for illegal aliens. I mean, these are so outside of the mainstream, and they're leaving so many people behind. They're turning so many people off. And meanwhile, the split screen, the media you know, constantly saying, chicken little, the sky is falling, you know, it was Russia, it was Ukraine, it was collusion, you can't pull out of the Paris climate deal, you can't pull out of the Iran deal, you can't move the embassy to Jerusalem, you can't uh, renegotiate NAFTA, you you can't do anything, right, what they've been saying, what Barack Obama's closing pitch after eight years of abysmal failure, after eight years of anemic economic growth, when you had 14 million people leave the labor force under two terms of Obama-Biden, Obama was saying you can't. what we can't do, the hope and change guy, eight years later said, nope, we can't bring back manufacturing jobs, nope, we can't negotiate better trade deals, nope, how are you going to do this, you can't do it. And what has President Trump done? He's done all of those things. And so you have this split screen going on where the objective observer, whether they voted for President Trump or not last time, whether they were a fan with him, of him, they look at this, these results and say, he's been right, they've been wrong, he's doing everything he said he was going to do. And it's a very novel thing in politics because they never do that. And maybe it's because he was never a politician. But he cares about this country. He didn't need to do this. Uh, but he keeps working every single day to follow through on all those promises to make America great again, and he's doing a heck of a job. That he is. And you know what I, I love? I, <laughs> as soon as I saw this, I ripped the article out, and I was waving it to my husband, uh, because Andrew Yang dropped out. So they turned around and polled the Yang gang to see who, which Democrat they would vote for, and lo and behold, 10% of them said that they would vote for Trump. This is wonderful. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that's more than uh, Elizabeth Warren got in her neighboring state uh, in New Hampshire. And the, when she finished fourth place, she got less than 10%. It's amazing. Um, you know, Yang was, I mean, ridiculous ideas absurd, uh, were pretty absurd, but he also was actually talking about, um, you know, issues in a way that the others weren't, which is he was saying, look, we can't just be the party of impeachment and just hostility and anger and just resistance. We have to actually be talking about what people care about. And no, none of those Democrats are willing to do that. They barely mention the economy because they can't. And again, when, when Joe Biden on the debate stage, he's saying, don't believe you, you believe me over your lying eyes. Don't believe your pocketbook. Don't believe the fact that we just hit a record high 
optimism over your personal finances. I mean, there's confidence. People are getting their pay is being increased for the first time in decades. For the bottom income workers, the lowest income workers among us are getting the biggest raises. And that is calls for celebration. And what do the Democrats say? I mean, their whole thing, their whole pitch is class warfare. Their whole pitch is income inequality. And yet it is the policies of President Trump and it's the Republican agenda that is actually narrowing income inequality. They don't, they just, they can't, they have to just say, deny reality and uh, pretend like this economy is, is not booming. And, but people feel it and they can't, they, there's no way that Democrats can convince you of what you know is different in your pocketbook. So that's why they don't want to talk about the economy. Liz, yeah, when, when you speak, I got another question. Uh, let me just make let me just make this one point, Curtis. Then I'll let you with the question because if you look at the, the fast food workers in that industry, a lot of those companies are now paying that fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. But when you have a manager at Taco Bell go from thirty five thousand dollars a year to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, I think the economy is doing pretty darn good. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I really love what Trump is doing uh, when it comes to minority communities as far as talking up the economy and the positive impact it has had with minorities as far as the lowest unemployment rate and things like that. But I think he should also put forth to to enlighten these folks that, um, hey, the Republican Party is the party that you have a historical bond with since it was the Republican party that liberated, you know, the ancestors of blacks from slavery. And I think by doing that, he will open the eyes of a lot of people in the black community. That's that's just my my view. Absolutely. We, we have a great tradition in our party. uh, And we also have better policies that uplift all Americans and we want every American to succeed. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you hear the way the Democrats talk about everything, they, they talk down on everyone. Like we're all too stupid, that we all need the government handout, that we all need government's health in or, help in order to get by, when in reality is government gets in the way, and government gets in the way of our opportunities to live out the American dream. And so absolutely, our policies, our vision, our record, the results, those are so attractive that I think every American, and we want to earn every American's vote because we want every American to succeed. We want to continue in this great American comeback. And to see numbers like the lowest unemployment on record for African Americans, to see the lowest poverty rates, to see wages rising at historically high levels, that's amazing news. And that's something we all should celebrate uh, and keep to continue going because there's more we can do. There's so much more. We're just getting started. This is only three years in. And to think the difference and the impact that's happening in the country and real people's lives is absolutely amazing. 
and we have a huge opportunity. I heard Senator Tim Scott uh, just the other day. He thinks President Trump's going to double his support from black Americans. He thinks it's going to be a huge wake-up call on November 3rd for the Democrat Party. And it should have been. It should have been a wake-up call in 2016. But they've refused to, to respond to what the voters were telling them. They refuse to accept President Trump as a duly elected president. It's, easy for, it's easier for them, to, instead of taking any accountability of what politicians have failed communities all across this country, no, instead, and they're still doing it, instead they'll, they spread a lie and they amplified the lie about Russia collusion. They're, they're trying to take, take it up again. And, you know, I love this because here they are setting it up again to say that, oh, Russia really wants President Trump to win re-election, never mind that he's been so much tougher on Russia than Barack Obama, Mr. Flexibility, wait till I'm after my re-election to, with the Kremlin, what, to transmit this to Vladimir than Obama was. And yet the Democrats are on the cusp of nominating the guy who chose to go to his spend his honeymoon in the Soviet Union. Who do you think Russia would would rather have? <laughs> I, the, the whole I'm just so looking forward to the media having to explain that one. That yeah, really they want they want President Trump. To, it's it's so preposterous. Real people see it, and like I said, the Democrats think we're all idiots, when in reality the media and their part, they're the useful idiots. And they discount our intelligence, they insult our intelligence, and we're going to prove them all wrong again. And it's not going to be pretty for them, uh, just like on the night of 2016, which was one of the greatest greatest nights of celebration uh, I've certainly ever had. I, and most of that was watching the meltdowns. And can you imagine what the meltdown's going to be when he's reelected <laughs> by an even bigger margin? It's going to be glorious. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you a true story because uh, you know I run a tea party down here. We, we have it now going on 11 and a half years and still have our meetings. So on the election night, we went to a local restaurant that favors us, and we've had took over one side of the restaurant. The other side, obviously, they were the Democratic customers. And as it became more and more uh, obvious that Trump was going to win, hands down, slowly people started to trickle out. And we weren't making a ton of noise. We were just cheering as the results were coming in. Right. And next thing we know, we were the only ones left in the <laughs> So we saw the meltdown before the results were fully in. And I, I, I just love that. I'm going to see if he can do that again with us uh, when it comes around this November or again. <laughs> have another it's celebration party. It's going to be great. I mean, I just, he's done such an incredible job. No one deserves a second term more than this president. And it's been just incredible. Uh, no other person could have done it. I mean, the, what, the sabotage uh, by Hillary and Obama's FBI, they tried everything to to delegitimize him and to get him out. I mean, the whole thing was such a joke and a farce, but it consumed the entire media for over two years based on lies, based on made-up garbage, and then they knew it was garbage. And so 
to have to live through all that. And then when it finally blows up in their face, then the, the second, the day after, they move on to their next hoax with Ukraine. And it's completely ridiculous. And that's why, to go back to what we were saying earlier about the independence and people being left behind by their party, Americans have an innate sense of fairness and justice, and they know what the Democrats have been doing to President Trump is unfair and it's unjust, and he did not deserve to be impeached. They're totally out of control. Nancy Pelosi's ripping up the State of the Union, and it's just they've been throwing a temper tantrum just because they lost an election. And everybody else has moved on from 2016, except they can't. They just can't bring themselves to. And so I, I read an op-ed out in Town Hall today, townhall.com today. Uh, but I, I do think Democrats have finally made a little bit of progress because the five stages of grief, they've been in denial. There's been a lot of anger. Uh, but I think they're finally getting to the third stage of their grief over 2016. It's called bargaining because now they're considering the old white billionaire and allowing him to buy their election as a get out of 2016 free card. <laughs> so they, you know they're 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 in the bargaining stage. So at least they're on their way. Maybe by the time President Trump has another landslide victory, they'll finally finish the, the the fourth and fifth stages because it's been just a disaster to watch. And that's why President Trump is doing so well as well because. He continues to be the same. He continues to be consistent. He continues to follow through. Everyone sees that. Everyone sees the results. Everyone feels the results. And that's why he's going up. And all Democrats can do is sit and cry about it. And they've offered absolutely nothing for the people except these radical policies that nobody wants either. Well, you know, what's, what I, I always find amazing because he does things sometimes very, very quietly. And then once it's done, then you find out about it. Like the outreach he has been doing to different communities in our nation, uh, working with the prisoners. Uh, remember he had the Amish in the office? Well, that was my friend that brought them in, Chris Cox. Uh, listeners who don't know who Chris Cox is, he's one of the five people running for South Carolina district seat number one that the nation is watching. Um, I hope he gets it. I can't, because of the Tea Party, I can't back anyone before the primary. But, you know, through people like Chris, he's reaching out to different segments. He's brought a whole bunch of segments of the Amish in, the American Indians in. Trump has been reaching out to the black community, the evangelistic community, uh, helping redeem prisoners so they become valuable members of society again. He's reaching out to so many and doing quiet projects without anyone knowing until the orders or the legislation is signed. Right. And that's what's so great about this president also, and that's what why people are so turned off by the Democrats. He's he's one he's a deal maker. He wants to get things done. He's not just looking for his power. He didn't need this. He had a great life. But and he and he's offered to negotiate with Democrats time and time and time again. And what have they done every time? They've blown up the meeting. Nancy Pelosi walks out. You know, she throws another fit. It's ridiculous. And people see that. And, you know, President Trump has offered common-sense solutions. He wants to do something big on infrastructure, perfect opportunity for a bipartisan deal. Nope, they don't have any interest 
It's their way or the highway. It's this childish antics that is just so such a turnoff, and and, and because it's at the expense of our country, the, the opportunity cost. I mean, President Trump has accomplished so much more uh, than we even thought possible, and that is the can-do American spirit. But there's so much other things we could do that Democrats, because they have the House and they've turned it into a, a weaponized arm to investigate your political opponents with smears and leaks and try attempts at sabotage, well, they've they've wasted our time and our money, and they haven't done anything except pass far-left legislation that has no prayer in divided government, has no prayer uh, of getting passed through the Senate. We are willing to work with the other side, and all they've shown is just this unhinged hostility. And it is a shame, but good news for for us. I think we have momentum. We are more energized because of what they've done. And come, you know, next year, all of those freshman Democrats who ran as so-called moderates, who claim they didn't want to go for impeachment and they wanted to work for the president, well, they'll be out of a job and all they'll have is their lousy Nancy Pelosi pen. That's it. <laughs> Which is worth zip. As yeah. a matter of fact, AOC, AOC is having uh, 12 challengers in her primary, and there's three Republicans running also. So you'll have a definite Republican running, a good, strong Republican running against whoever comes out of the Democratic primary. And she may be just a, a one-hit wonder. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, her ideas are just downright dangerous. I mean, she is full-blown trying to mainstream normalize these this socialism uh, that's so destructive. Uh, but the, the thing is, her and the rest of the squad – uh, it's been actually kind of good to expose what Democrats have allowed to enter their party, how radical they've become. Uh, I don't think they'll last in office very long, but it's illustrative and it's and it's good and it will be healthy for the country to defeat that ideology because it's so anti-American. I mean, they just it's open borders. It's abolish ICE, it's lawlessness, it is class warfare, the politics of envy. It's so divisive, uh, and it just has has no place in our country. It's not what America is about. It was what we were founded against, and um, I think it would be very good news uh, to expose that and have it defeated because uh, she kind of coasted in as an unknown um, you know, and all, this and that, but at the end of the day, what she's, it's all about her politics and her ideas, and we've seen it tried uh, everywhere before. It's failed, it's destructive, uh, and it's dangerous, and we should defeat it at the ballot box. Absolutely, and when you looked at Nancy Pelosi, because now she doesn't want just Bob, Bob Barr to, uh, uh, Bill Barr to resign. She wants to go after him tooth and nail. Residing's not good enough for Nancy Pelosi. She's got to actually tear that man apart. You know, they do, they tried that with Kavanaugh. 
And Kavanaugh is an experiment to see, well, if we can tear Kavanaugh down, then we can go after Trump for impeachment. Well, we've gone after Trump for impeachment. Now we go after everyone else. Uh, so now they're going after uh, Barr, Attorney General Barr, for you know doing what he legally is in office to do. Well, they hate the people the most who are most effective and that they can't control and they can't bully into submission. And, look, I think Jeff Sessions is a patriot, but, you know, he didn't stand up for what was right. And he allowed really this terrible – this was based on lies and disinformation. They lied. They leaked it. They, they, they launched a disinformation campaign against their own government. And he allowed that to happen. He allowed the special counsel – investigation to even start it should have never even started it was based on a lie they knew it was a lie they knew the dossier was garbage that's the only thing they had it was paid for by hillary it was a bunch of junk it it should have been laughed out of the fbi but what did they do no they used it to spy on president trump before he was even elected and then by february 2017 they knew the people it was based on said it was hearsay upon hearsay made up bar talk it was a bunch of junk. The only evidence that they came back with was uh, the opposite, that there was no collusion. So they knew there was no underlying crime. They knew there was no wrongdoing. And yet they launched this, I mean, call it a coup, because that's the language that the whistleblower, so-called whistleblower's attorney, was using since January 2017. That's what this was. It was designed to set President Trump up, they used it in the January 6th meeting uh, at Trump Tower uh, to then as a pretext to leak it to CNN and legitimize this sham that should the media should have never reported uh, because they didn't have any evidence. And it, it was unnamed sources and corrupt political uh, intelligence agents from the Obama administration, and they ca- they waged this disinformation campaign on us and you know, against President Trump. They ruined people's lives. Uh, they tried to bankrupt people uh, that didn't cave to them. KT McFarland just had a, an interview, a radio interview, where she, for the first time, said her 40 hours of hell being interrogated by the Mueller prosecutors. So th- these are Mueller prosecutors who knew there was no collusion, and yet they wanted her to admit to things that were untrue and to say things about other people that were also untrue and tried to get her, but she didn't. And uh, it's just it's horrible what they did. And President Trump is right to call it out because it's wrong. And the idea that he's still, I mean, he's still standing, and I, he's stronger after this. And that's what's so amazing about it all. Everything they've tried, everything they've thrown at him and his family, anyone associated with him, it's all backfired. It'll continue to backfire because the truth will come. Out, the truth comes out, and the truth wins. And so, it's been. It's really incredible to think what they did, and they're still trying to do it. I mean. Put on CNN, well, put on MSNBC. They're doing it right now as we speak. <laughs> They're laying the, the Russia disinformation campaign trap again. It's just a joke. But peop, the good news is people don't believe them anymore because they don't deserve to be believed. Well, I think the left fear Barr and Durham 
as much as they do Trump because let's let's think about it. Um, the Justice Department could come after them, and I hope they do, and put them all in jail. And Just personally, justice, I cannot right? wait till Durham comes out with his report because I would like to see justice served to these people. I mean, it seems like everybody on our side goes to jail, including Roger Stone, and um, they they get a pass. And we're getting tired of seeing that, you know. And we we're getting tired of hearing this in this country. Yeah. It's just we're it's tired of just, just wait, wait. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then, boom, those on the right, um, the left, they get another pass. And that's why I think that's why President Trump keeps speaking out about it because it is so fundamentally unfair to have Andy McCabe lied four times under oath at least. And not just lied, like pathologically lied, because he leaked the story for personal gain about the investigating the Clinton Foundation to get political heat off of his back for the email investigation, uh, or his conflict of interest, because his wife uh, received all of that funding when she was running for a state seat in Virginia from, oh, what do you know, Terry McAuliffe. Close ally to Hillary Clinton. Imagine that. The number two in the FBI, his wife, gets $600,000 towards her campaign. So he leaked this story that, oh, no, no, you know, Mr. Lawman, Andy McCabe, he's straight shooter. They're investigating the Clinton Foundation, too. Well, after that comes out and James Comey, another liar and another leaker, um, tells, said, who leaked this? He not only lies to Comey, he calls up, McCabe calls up agents in the office in New York and rips them a new one complaining about leaks when he was the person who authorized the leak. I mean, it's all detailed in the inspector general, which referred him for criminal investigation. And so the audacity, there's a reason why we call them a liar and a leaker, because they lied and they leaked, and they're corrupt. It didn't just, you know, it, it's not like President Trump said, got elected, and he said, show me the FBI, you know, who's on it, what are their political views, let's go after it. No, they went after President Trump for no reason, the, other than he was duly elected by the American people, and, and the people chose him as their president. They targeted him. And so for Andy McCabe to now go on television and complain about a cloud over him for two years, to complain about the threat uh, of being under investigation and the threat of charges, well, pot meat kettle. I mean, this is ridiculous. That's what they did to Trump based on lies, which they knew were lies. It is the hypocrisy There's no sympathy for what he did and what he's gotten away with, but hopefully justice will not be continue uh, to be denied because there there has to be accountability. Because otherwise, what's the incentive for other political operatives within the Justice Department to not leak, to not lie, to not launch politically motivated investigations if there's never going to be any accountability? You know, the worst part is, is if it's someone like you or me who did this, we've been locked up in a heartbeat. But because it's from the anti-Trump crowd, from the left, uh, they're bulletproof. They're Teflon. And it, it's got to stop. 
you know, it, it, you you mentioned Katie McFarland, and I saw those interviews. I I heard the one on um, Andrew Wilkow, and I saw the one on Fox last night, and it's frightening that they can take all of her material, which is what they've done to everyone. They they've subpoenaed and removed all of their reference notes, materials, recordings, whatever, for them as evidence. So you have nothing to refer back to. So when they question her about a conversation or a phone call, well, I don't have my notes. Can I see them so I can refresh my memory? No, you can't. Forcing her into a lie, unknowingly lying. It's corrupt. It's absolutely corrupt. And, you know, these heavy-handed prosecutors, they've been doing it for years. Uh, Sidney Powell's book uh, is fantastic about – same same cast of characters, Andrew Weissman, hiding exculpatory information. It's called License to Lie. It details so many of their cases, the Enron case. And, you know, a lot of it, it starts, you know, with good intentions or it starts with actually investigating something maybe, and then it just spirals out of control. And these are power-mad prosecutors. I mean, imagine it, the head of the Mueller investigation. I mean, I jo- I went on Fox News, you know, during, I don't know, 2018, and I joked about Peter Strzok and Lisa Page because all their texts were starting to come out. And I said, you know, these people sound like they belong on MSNBC or CNN or, you know, been working for the FBI. And what do you know it? Andy McCabe, contract, CNN. Uh, Andrew Weissman, contract, MSNBC. These are the people running these investigations. They're so partisan. They were so out to get this president. All of them, the vast majority of them, had donated to Democrats. Not a single one was a Republican donor. It's ridiculous. A a person who had represented the Clinton Foundation, give us a break. And yet what the amazing thing is, they wanted something so bad, anything against President Trump. And that Mueller report ended up exonerating him. Because at the end of the day, you know, they're they're corrupt people, but they couldn't fabricate complete evidence, right? They could spin, they could innuendo, they could leak, they could do all this, but they couldn't invent facts that didn't happen. And so that's the end result, because there was never any collusion. There was never any obstruction. It was uh, being upset by the fact of being falsely accused uh, again and again and again. And that's what, ha- that's what happened to President Trump. He's been an innocent man. He, the, the media and the Democrats, they view him as guilty until proven innocent. And then when he's proven innocent, oh, you're not exonerated. They completely turn our justice system on its head. It is not how justice is supposed to work. And really, the Mueller report, it exonerated him, because if it, but it never should have even happened. And it was a very expensive, taxpayer-funded disgrace when you, when you say, but this does not exonerate him. You either recommend charges, you either charge, or you don't. And if you're not, you are cleared. That is the American justice system. And they've trampled all over it. They've, they've changed norms. They've just totally... Uh, lessened our faith in institutions. It's been terrible, but we, but President Trump keeps winning because the truth keeps winning, and you can't stop that. And no matter how hard they've tried, but the the political bias 
uh, working in the FBI is a disgrace. And the tactics they used against innocent people uh, is a disgrace. And we should keep talking about it. I know President Trump's going to keep talking about it. Uh, and we need accountability. Well, absolutely. How many lives have been ruined? Carter Page, uh, Jerome Corsi, we mentioned Roger Stone, what Katie McFarland had to go through, what Gates is still going through and still what they're putting him through. And it, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, General Flynn, uh, how many people have had their lives ruined all because they want to take down President Trump? And they're just in the right. way. Right. And, you know, where do you go to get your name back? Where does Carter Page go to get his name back? And he was never even charged with anything. Um, and speaking of Andy McCabe, the way in, in the general fund case, and I, we have to let the process play out and see what happens, but it, everything we know about that case so far, it was a complete setup. An investigation over the Logan Act, which has never been used to try a single American citizen. It's a joke. And not only is it a joke, it was during a presidential transition. It was Michael Flynn's job to be talking as the incoming national security advisor, to be talking to world leaders and world governments, ambassadors. That's literally what's his job. And the fact that the Obama administration, on their way out of power, were unmasking people and spying and using it again. So they knew what he said in that phone call. They call him up and they say, oh, no, you don't need a lawyer, just a chat. And they use that. And they say they don't think he lied at the time. And then, lo and behold, months later, a 302 shows up saying that, oh, he did lie. It's, it is such a travesty, and they did the same thing there. The, the reason he, Sidney Powers' lawyer, the reason they've now trying to change the plea deal is because they were going after his son. And so he figured, you know, what? I guess I'll just have to plead guilty, even though I don't think I lied. And that is just wrong. This is a, regardless of what you think about, uh, his positions or, you know, whatever, this was a decorated uh, military man, a general uh, who served our country, and that's how he was treated, still being treated. Uh, it, it's just a travesty. Liz, I'm going to share with that you is- another travesty. You know, Americans usually, we revere our first ladies, say like Jack, Jacqueline Kennedy or Barbara Bush, but the way they have treated Melania Trump, it's, it's sad, you know. I mean, she never really is on the cover of any fashion magazine. <laughs> She's and, a and I, I still see, <laughs> I still see Michelle Obama every once in a right. while, and not even, you know, in D.C. right now in an f- official capacity. And it's just the way they ignore her and talk about the way she dresses and things. It's, it's horrendous. It's sad, it, but she has so much poise and so much class. She's so accomplished. Uh, she she does a terrific, fantastic job, and, and people absolutely love uh, our First Lady. She She's amazing, and she doesn't get the credit, just like her husband. They don't get the credit they deserve, um, but people see it. They really do, and she everywhere she goes, she's just 
really brightens up the room. On Valentine's Day, she was at the Children's Inn, which is uh, a hospital affiliated with the NIH, or Children's Hospital, visiting with kids and making Valentines. And just, she works really hard. Uh, they have a great family. The whole family is uh really great and um they do great work and great job great job they're totally maligned unfairly by the media uh they're treated to a completely different standard i mean imagine if don junior was doing the things that hunter biden has been up to <laughs> i mean you can imagine it would be all over the place and yet the media covers for the corruption and just the despicable behavior but of the Bidens, but they we we don't we we know the media they're le- they're left wing, they are cheerleaders for Democrats. They have not they, they will not give you credit at all unless there's a D behind your name or unless you're a Republican like Mitt Romney. You know <laughs> that's the only time they'll use you. Uh, after they called him every name in the book. I mean, we're old enough to remember what happened in 2012. Uh, this was The media was no fan of Mitt Romney. That's why he should know better than anyone what the media does. But, you know, we, we've gotten used to that. Uh, we don't let it bother us because I mean, you, couldn't, you couldn't do anything. If, you were, if you're a conservative, you're a Republican, you couldn't turn on the radio, listen to a pop song. You can't go to the movies. You can't watch a sporting event uh, without hearing the other side. You don't really have to watch the news. You hear the liberal worldview. It's all-consuming. It's dominant in our culture, in Hollywood. Uh, and we, we have to have a thick skin. We have to be tougher uh, because we have to be exposed to the other side constantly. But I think it does make us tougher and it makes us smarter. Um, and it makes us have more perseverance because, look, I mean, look what Melania Trump, she doesn't let it bother her. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's been very difficult for their family, though, the amount of attacks they've got gone through. But they they are tough, and I think that's what so many people appreciate about them. They they fight, and they're tough, and she does it with class, and she does it behind the scenes, and she is doing such amazing uh, work as first lady for the country and charities and different causes, and it's great to see, but... Yeah, I don't expect the media to ever give the credit she deserves, but the people do, and that's more important. Well, Liz, it has been a lot of fun having you on and always welcome you back. I look forward to speaking to you again. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. And God, Take God care. bless. Thank you. All right, Liz Harrington, you can find at GOP.com. Uh, we have our next guest a little late, a little behind, but that's okay. Let's welcome aboard. That's if my board is working. All right. Welcome aboard Deanna Lorraine, who is running in a primary for District 12 and hopefully against Nancy Pelosi when she comes out the other side of the primary. Good afternoon, Deanna. How are you today? Hey, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm sorry about any mix-up there was, but... uh, Hey, we had Liz Harrington from the GOP. She's the national spokesperson, so... At least we had someone to fill in until you got here. You know, I'm sorry. It was a little bit of a time mix-up for me. i normally very good at time zones, but um, today I guess I wasn't. So I apologize. That was my fault with the time zone mix-up. 
That's all right. East Coast, you're on the left coast, so we got to get that left side of the brain to work differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, the the left coast and then the Tommy, California. Now, you are an activist. You 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 have your fingers in so many pies. You're such a busy lady. What made you decide <laughs> to run for the seat? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, when Nancy Pelosi talks, the words that she says and her actions, how could your blood not boil? How could you not want to fight her in every way possible? You know, I mean, that's, that's just how I feel. It's she, she's dividing this country so much. She's taking our country, and especially the District of San Francisco, so far downhill to a destructive path. And she's doing nothing positive for the country. She is trying to block our president's every move. She tries to impeach him when he's been doing the greatest job. Certainly he's the president of my lifetime. How could you not want to fight her? That's what got me going. I, I just couldn't. I have, I'm a relationship person, though. When I have issues with someone, I want to actually be straight up and talk to them and see if we can work it out. So this is just me, you know, having a relationship issue with her and taking it straight to the front lines, to her front door, and seeing if we can work something out. Because I have problems with her leadership. I've got major problems. And it's got to stop. And she is leading the Democrats too far to the left. She's leading our country too far to the left, and our president is doing a fantastic job. And I believe she is the, she is the embodiment of cultural rot in America. That's why I'm taking the, the, the fight to her front lines. Well, it's funny because I was going through your website, and I, I love it, where you have your Meet De- uh, Deanna, which explains who you are. And you put down one mm-hmm. of your favorite quotes by Edmund Burke, and I wrote behind, yep. below that my favorite quote, your, yours is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And my favorite is similar to that, but it's by Dante. And it says, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. I'd rather see her. Mm-hmm. I could, I'd rather have like a picture for burning in hell. I like that one a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's, it's, it's about this. This is the time, right? It, it, you know, we are at a crossroads in America right now, and we're either going to keep our heads in the sand with ostrich syndrome, and we're going to just get complacent and allow these socialists to keep on taking over our country that I love so dearly, and I know that you do too, or we're going to stand up and fight and throw ourselves in the fire. However way that, that's, that, that is for you, that is true for you, go and fight. So me, I just can't look back with any regrets. I've got to fight. I almost left California because I couldn't take, I'm a born and raised native Californian. I loved my golden state. But after a while, I mean, the, the Democrat leadership has, has really ruined this beautiful state. It really has. And I, I thought, but you know what? I'm not a quitter. I'm a fighter. So before I leave this great state and go to somewhere more red like Texas or Florida, I'm going to fight. I'm going to throw myself in the fire and see what I could do to make a difference here so that I know I tried every option. I'm going to fight for the state. Well, I, I got to love true. what you did, right? 
Well, I, I got to love what you did, because uh, right after the State of the Union and Nancy Pelosi making that whole big charade about, you know, tearing up the uh, the State of the Union address, mm-hmm. you did something a little crazy. And you have a website called PelosiForPrison.co. Um, <laughs> how did you manage to get a banner up so fast after the State of the Union? <laughs> I I won't tell you my secret, but I, I just did it. I, you know, I wanted a fast response. And, you know, it, part of it was, in, was intuition. I had already started the planner banning process the week prior. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was interesting because I, I was, like, already feeling like we need to start prosecuting for her crimes against Americans. And so then when the, when the State of the Union happened, and she was so disgraceful. That was just my green light. I said, nope, we got to do this, and we got to do this now. We have to have a fast response to her disgraceful, disgusting, disrespectful actions towards Americans and towards our president, making a complete mockery of America and of the State of the Union. So we got to act fast. And I, you know, people asked me, they came from all over the country and even in different countries saying, you must do something. You can be our voice to you know, slap her around and call her out for what she has done to us. The people are so angry, so angry. So I felt like, you know, it, you know, they asked, I'm delivering. And, yes, it was a fast turnaround time, and I expedited the process. Well, what you did was you got yourself a plane. You got yourself a 25-by-80-foot mm-hmm. banner that says, Pelosi yes. for prison, sign the petition, Deanna for, uh, for Congress. And you flew it over <laughs> the district right over her house and everything yeah. else. I just love that. That is just so in <laughs> Thank your face. Yeah, you've got to go bold because so many people, especially in San Francisco, are so politically correct. They're so worried about offending people. They're so in the closet with their views. And I said, no, if there's ever going to be a change, if there's ever going to be a great awakening, we've got to put it right in front of their face. We just do. And I was a little worried about maybe my Christian fan base. You know, I'm a Christian myself, and I have a lot of Christians and evangelicals behind me in the faith-based community. So there was a little bit of trepidation at first that maybe eh, maybe this would piss them off or maybe this would be a little bit too bold. But I got a fantastic response from the faith community. You know, and the reason is really is what I felt intuitively, which is God likes justice. Justice is important, and he is a just God, and we need to start um, getting justice for people that are so egregious and that are so breaking laws openly and brazenly and that are anti-American, that are, that are anti-Christian. We need to start throwing justice down on these people. So I got a great response from really everybody for this plane, and people were so upset that they really – you know, they were they were welcoming this plane. You know, you've got a great platform. People can find information about you. It's your name, Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A, Deanna for Congress.com. And I don't think we have enough time. I had enough stuff to fill for a full hour to talk to you about. But you, you <laughs> go in there and say, these are the issues. This is what I see. This is what I want to do about it. And it's on your platform, on your webpage. But you've gone even further than that and proposing a homeless actualization plan, uh, which Mm -hmm. would help the growing homelessness across the nation. It's not just in California, New York, 
I mean, just the other day here in South Carolina, driving into the city, which is maybe 10,000 people, that's our city, really big, um, there was homeless in the park. It's a waterfront park, and they're there at the waterfront camping out in the park. We have it in our own backyard. People don't realize this is a nationwide problem. Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, San Francisco is obviously very, very visible here because President Trump has drawn a lot of great, great attention to it and um, and put a spotlight on it. So here's what's so upsetting to me. And again, you know, my Sicilian Spanish blood is boiling when I see this. But I've looked through Nancy Pelosi's campaign and her website, and her campaign has released over 381 press releases in this past year alone. 381, and not a single one of them has addressed the homeless crisis or the drugs or the trash or the feces on the streets in the district. Not one. Almost all of them were concerned about impeaching the president or concerned in prioritizing illegal immigrants and how we're going to fund them or how we're going to get free health care to them or LGBTQ issues. Those were the top three. Uh, how sick do you have to be? How ask backwards of your priorities do you have to have to not have homelessness be at least one press release? So that really was angering to me, and it, it should be very revealing where her priorities lie. She does not care about American citizens. She does not care about the residents in her own district of San Francisco. She doesn't care about their well-being. She doesn't want them to be healthy and hopeful and, and wealthy and self-sufficient. She, like most of the Democrats, they want us to be dumb and asleep and controlled, easily controlled. They want us to be broken poor so that we're dependent on the government, right? And that's what they want. And that's also how they've destroyed the family unit. The family unit, which is another one of my causes that I champion, I'm a men's and father's rights activist and a huge family, uh, fam- champion for the American family, which is so broken right now. The broken family is the leading cause of all of our societal ills right now. They just are what they have to do with mass shooters. They have to do with the, dr- the rising drug addiction, the rising mental health problems, homelessness, incarceration rate, everything, rape, harassment, you name it. It all has to do with the broken family unit. And the left has destroyed the family unit. Their policies and their, their uh, ideologies over the years have destroyed the family unit and broken it up replacing the family unit with dependency on the government. Our strong families is the biggest threat to, to, to our country because when we have families that are together, we are self-sufficient. We don't need the government to help us out. So it, it, it is a benefit to them when we have broken families and they're intentionally destroying the family unit. That's why we need to put policies into place that help restore and strengthen the family unit because strong families create a strong America. Yeah, I just um, said a mouthful right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got me—you got me shuffling for papers because I've got like a whole stack here. Here, um, because you've actually—and I found this amazing. I didn't know Will Farrell uh, is involved in this one. Is uh, the men's rights? Um, yeah, Warren Farrell. I didn't. I mm-hmm. would, yeah, I was not aware of that. And Warren this is something Farrell, we've done on not, the show. Not, yeah, yeah, Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell is one of the leading men's rights activists. And um, he is held headlining, which I'm a part of too, is the White House Council on Boys and Men, because there's a White House Council on Women and Girls. 
to help make sure that they're successful and have everything set up to thrive in life. But there has been no White House counsel for boys and men. And we have a boy problem right now. We have a crisis that boys and men are falling behind in work and life and in school. Um, and women are soaring. There's no woman crisis. There's a man crisis right now. Women are soaring while men are being demeaned, emasculated, and falling behind. And so we need to make sure that men are properly set up too. Because, again, strong, healthy men create strong, healthy relationships with women, which then create strong families. I, I always go crazy when I hear someone use the word misogyny. It just drives me mm-hmm. up the wall. And there's so many, uh, with the Me Too movement and everything else, it has mm. just gone so far. And we yes. no longer have real men out there. We're not raising real men. We're raising uh, metrosexuals, you know, yes. walk around with the ponytails and the man purse. Mm-hmm. Come on, give me a guy. I want a guy that when he goes out fishing, yes. he says, he goes, have the t-shirt that says I love fishing and I would have the t-shirt that says I love when he goes fishing. <laughs> so you, you want a man there. I'm sorry. Yes. It, it's statistically you proven that women, women prefer masculinity, not these he, she's. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's disgusting that, you know, but feminists want to rule. They, they want men to be docile and, and emasculated and feminized. You know, they say that they want that. And look, then we have a culture of boys that grow up many times without fathers or without strong male role models. So they grow up very confused, weak, checked out in life, or they end up being very angry and become rapists or shooters and end up in the criminal system. So when we produce strong, healthy men and boys, then those, end up, those men end up treating women with respect and treating women well. So what I can't stand is a feminist that go crazy talking about Me Too and Me Too movement and the rape culture, but yet they're diminishing the, the men's and boys' issues and what, what they're dealing with. So if we make sure that men are properly empowered and boys are properly empowered, then they then women benefit too. Boys and men's issues are women's issues too. Yeah, not only that, if you have a strong man and a woman that's willing to work at his side with him, you get a stronger relationship. The stronger your relationship, they're healthier, they're happier, they end up being wealthier and more adjusted in life. If you have a wrong dichotomy in that relationship, it's not going to be healthy, guaranteed to end up in, uh, in divorce or domestic violence or heaven forbid anything worse than that. And they don't understand the need for a strong, healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Deanna. Yes. As you know, they're pushing this transgender agenda in our school systems, especially with young kids. Um, once you defeat Pelosi and as as and being a Christian, what is it that you can do about this and, and will you make any attempts to um try to reverse this agenda that's being um um put put upon our school systems? Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, number one, one of the things that I would like to do when I get to Congress is um is roll out my Protect America's Children and Families Act. And that is 
I believe that sex and gender and morals should be taught by loving parents in the home, not by Planned Parenthood or radical leftist teachers at school. So I will introduce this Protect American Children and Families Act, which will include reducing or removing this quote-unquote mandatory sexuality, abortion, and gender curriculum from schools and taxpayer dollars and require parental approval and choice to withdraw children from classes when any of this questionable or inappropriate material is being presented. They absolutely need to know what, what material is being presented. Number two, I would make all sorts of things, you know, uh, uh, I, I would look into all sorts of things like Planned Parenthood um, being able to uh, dispense these hormone uh, drugs to children without parents' consent. They can go to a Planned Parenthood, and now they can get hormone treatment and start the process of transitioning to the opposite sex without even their parents' consent, which is absolutely unacceptable and disgusting. Okay, Nancy Pelosi is also headlining the uh, the Equality Act, the Gender Equality Act, which sounds all nice and dandy, but it's not. It is sinister and disgusting, and it basically eradicates the concept of gender. So there is no then difference between male and female. God created us as male and as female, and they created us, he created us differently and uh, synergistically. And we, are, we have these differences, and they're beautiful differences, and we need each other because of these differences. But the left, and especially Nancy Pelosi, wants to eradicate those differences, so we're basically just a gender-neutral society, which is very dangerous because the ramifications are extreme. I write about this a lot in my book, Making Love Great Again, about the repercussions of a genderless society. So, yes, this is something that I'm definitely championing, and I will definitely make changes when I get into Congress. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Equality Act, because I had a senator, nicest guy, I mean, he's more libertarian than he is conservative and he was pushing for the equality act for it to be passed in the state uh and house and he and i went back and forth in a series of emails and i think he finally understood where i was coming from because i said when it was put together it was supposed to be passed by the 70s back then we didn't have this large lbgt community pushing the transgender message you know a boy was a boy a girl was a girl but now and today, the conversation has changed so much that when you can say my gender is a rose, it's legal. Mm-hmm. So there is no yeah. defining gender. It, it, I said it's distorted so much, and it will be used to bash us, those that are Christian, uh, those that are biblically based, uh, or even those that are conservative, to silence us and to Quash us. And I said, it's going to have a boomerang effect. What you think you're doing is a good thing is going to turn out to be the exact opposite. Uh, absolutely. And so many of these uh, these acts are cloaked in these flowery, flowery language, and it's actually very harmful. And this would actually do more harm to women, too. The people are so dumb that they don't understand. You know, when we have transgender, when we have fully grown men with testosterone levels that are through the roof, when we have fully grown men, competing on a woman's track team or a woman's wrestling team or a woman's basketball team, women's Olympics, you better believe that they're going to win. They're most likely going to to win. And these women, these young girls who have made it their life's goal, their dream to practice 
and to get these Olympic gold medals and to get these get first place or second place to have it all just be destroyed because a biological man jumps into the race and wins. It's disgusting. I mean, that is the complete opposite of what I thought women's rights were all about. It's crazy. And yes, well, Deanna, the Christians become the vill- Christians become the villains of the world because when it, when someone dares to believe that God's uh, teaching and plan is accurate, that there is a male and there's female and that we are different. If we now dare say that, we can get even slapped with a fine, such as in states like New York or in countries like Canada, uh, or we will get ostracized from society and claimed that we are, uh, we, we are saying hate speech. So, yes, it's a very sinister and clever uh, tactic to make Christians the villains of the world now. Oh, yeah. Well, Deanna, I wish I had more time for you uh, because our next guest is in on the studio. But I'll get a hold of your office and get you to come back on the show, and then we can do a full I, hour I would with love you. To. I am so sorry about the mix-up of the time. That was my fault, but I would love to come back again. Great. No problem. Our pleasure. Thank you and so we'll much. And we'll be talking with yeah, you soon. Yeah, check me out. I, yes, follow me on Twitter right. at Deanna for Congress, okay? Thank you all. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. com. Let's bring on our next guest, Louisa Graves. Um, she is, let me see if I can get this correctly, not mess it up too much. Louisa Grev is the director of the Global Agency for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Good afternoon, uh, Louisa. Good afternoon. You know, um, I did a similar story on China, but we were centering on the Fulan Gong. And as I was doing that, I learned, you know, it's not just the Fulan Gong. It is the Muslims. It is Christians. It is political prisoners that are being put in these concentration camps that the world is only just starting to learn about. Yes, there is a a full-on what I would call a war on religion in today's China. And I, I hope that people learn more about it. Well, you know, it was astonishing because I also, uh, a while back, there was a BBC um, investigative uh, footage about this very, very same thing. And I sat there fascinated watching it. And they kind of like had the reporters going just a certain direction and weren't really truly showing them everything. Oh, these are things that they come here voluntarily. We teach them the Chinese because it's not their native language, and we help them integrate into society, and they learn dance, and they learn music, and they do all these wonderful things. Uh, But it's not. It's complete brainwashing, and it's total propaganda. I'm really glad that came across clearly. Yes, this criticism of the Chinese government for locking up Uyghurs and, and other Muslims, you know, there's Kyrgyz, Kazakh, it's a multi-ethnic area. It's actually the part of China, it's really Central Asian, uh, and the Uyghurs call their homeland East Turkestan, right? They don't call it China, uh, but it's within the current borders of China. And all over the, the place, they, the government has very rapidly, suddenly, in mid-2017, early 2017, so that's just almost three years ago, started filling up high schools and elementary schools, sometimes government offices, suddenly hauling people in and filling them up with so-called students doing 
quote, re-education, like you were saying. They're learning language. They're studying the law. They learn to, need to become, learn to become good citizens. And actually, as soon as you start hearing that, you say, well, do they choose to leave their job and attend, quote, unquote, school? This 55-year-old woman who normally has, you know, takes care of her children and has a business selling vegetables by the side of the road or is running her own business, and she suddenly leaves all that and decides to study language because it will help her, quote, unquote, be modern. So the moment you know anything about the circumstances, you realize it's it's a complete facade. I mean, as these these tours, like the the footage you saw on BBC, that was a Potemkin propaganda tour, and I'm really glad it was clear to the viewer. Oh, it's very obvious, very very obvious. Oh, at least to me. But then again, like I said, I have already done a couple of shows on China with their attacks on uh, religious liberty. A uh, matter of fact, I've got two friends of mine right now in the. Uh, province where this virus came out of doing missionary Mm. work for our church and so you know i know about these uh kitchen church services because you can't go to an official church you're not allowed that you have a chinese guard standing there to see who walks in and who walks out and what the priest is praying and it it got me so angry and i used to be a, a roman catholic i no longer am i'm now an anglican because when i saw the pope turn around and say to the chinese government go ahead and appoint the bishops i'll trust you excuse me you're the church is allowing the chinese government to decide who the bishops are and whether or not these bishops follow chinese policy and that's crazy but this is the chinese government is demanding these things in order for the church to function in China, and they they capitulated, and it made me so angry, so very angry. Wow, that is fascinating. I'm angry too. I totally share it, and I did not leave the Catholic Church, but you're making me think that I should have had the courage. You know, maybe I should think about that. Uh, uh, but it is certainly a phenomenon that the whole world seems to many institutions around the world seem to accept the way China treats religion. You have has it stopped uh, international business? from investing in China? No. Has it stopped universities from opening up satellite campuses? NYU and Yale and uh, Harvard and many other institutions, many other American universities and other from other countries, they have a campus. What do they think about respect for academic freedom? What do they think about freedom of religion? Nobody seems to ask that question. And of course, there's a balance to be struck. I will say that 15 years ago when you say, well, China is gradually getting more and more open, maybe the momentum will go towards better freedom. So it was reasonable to make that bet now. So, you know, the current general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party announced it was already almost five years ago, we will have, quote, sinification of religion, right? That came up when you were looking at what was happening to Falun Gong and, and Christians. And that, what does that mean? Removing foreign influences. So who gets to decide what's foreign? Well, I'll give you one guess. The Chinese government, the, Chinese the Communist Party. <laughs> they, yeah, the I mean, content could, of people's religion. This is this is pretty obvious when you just listen to what they say about their own plan. Yeah, because I have another friend of mine. Uh, she's a Christian singer, and she goes in there into there to work with the different churches, and she tells me what's going on in the underground and how they they strictly monitor her, knowing what she's doing. Um, And I sometimes fear and pray for their lives. But what I'm reading here, because I pulled up the BBC article as well as your website, and people can find it by going to uhrp.org. 
you as an uncle H. Henry R. Robert P. Peter, UHRP.org, which stands for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and learn about this. Um, it was very – I also had General Spaulding on the show talking about China, too, and how insidious they are in the everyday lives. And this is something we see now with the outbreak of the virus. And you're saying these detention centers are an incubation. It is, it's going to be massive deaths. We have no idea what's going on and how many people are there that have caught the virus and are sick with it. That's right. Even in open, normal Chinese cities, people don't trust government data. They probably don't have the right data. They've always crushed independent media. Doctors are afraid to speak up, otherwise we'll be punished. All these dysfunctions, now you'll see, if you just look at the reporting about this uh, outbreak of disease, the coronavirus now, you can see that a lot of the coverage is pointing out that lack of freedom, a dictatorship that wants to control information, is exactly the way to make sure more people get injured and uh, get infected. Doctors and nurses are dying. Apparently, there are supplies of protective gear that are being hoarded in certain government offices because the Red Cross doesn't dare to give it out to anyone but their own bosses that they have to please instead of giving it directly to the hospital. That was reported by uh, major international news. It seems incredible. So that's why I'm saying who even reported it. And in the case of the Uyghurs, um, if you have people, like you're saying, we would know these are secret detention centers. Thousands of people. We have a few survivors who've come out and said they were in overcrowded conditions, uh, unsanitary. The women got to go to wash once a week. They had all kinds of skin conditions, and they were tortured, and they had in- inadequate food. And we almost felt like they were in a, you know, so these a, a, a feeling of being a zombie all the time because they were eating basically such a starvation diet. So think about how what bad health they're in. It's a, and this is a very infectious disease. So once it gets into the population, it'll clearly spread very quickly. And so Uyghurs around the world are on social media just sounding the alarm. Why doesn't the World Health Organization go? Why can't, you know, what we were asking, we've actually asked the U.S. Department of Health and Services to please make a public statement expressing concern that if the universities are closing, right, so that students are not there in large numbers, that they stay home where they can not spread the disease, definitely the camp should be closed too. Well, the odd part is it's just three years ago, actually not three, but uh, prior to 2018, this was a desert. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive building sprung up, and it keeps Mm -hmm. on expanding and expanding and expanding. And we have no idea. It could be hundreds of thousands or a million. We have no idea how many people are incarcerated. You're right. So this is a very the geographic area where the Uyghurs live, and along with Kazakhs and, and Chinese people too. The Chinese government has encouraged people to move Chinese people to move there. Overall, the whole population of that area is 24 million. So that you know, in Europe, that'd be kind of a good-sized country, right? So, but it's just one region of China, and so people are in some big cities, and they're also in little oasis towns around that large desert in the middle of that region. So it's mountainous. It's got deserts, and it has oasis towns. So in in small towns and big, the local government officials were told, we have a problem, Uyghurs need to be controlled, we need to have a a security state, and we suspect them because they have backward thinking, and you know what the backward thinking was, it is they have, their loyalty is not to China, they they harbor resentment, they 
want to, they're more loyal to their own people and nation, and they have backward religion. They believe in God. So I just tell you, just this, on, on Tuesday, um, you're looking at this BBC story, right? The Caritas document. This is an actual document. It's the Caracash document. There's a BBC story just cutting out on Monday, and UHRP also issued our own report. It's a leaked government document. So it's just no longer the government saying, oh, you know, saying that the the testimony is still alive. This is a Chinese government document. Are you talking about 300? I'm sorry. I was was looking at the one that said the China cable. That's not the same one. Oh, that's an older one, and that's another good leak. That's very important because that proved the Chinese government had exactly a lot of internal government documents about how to carry out the suppression of the Uyghur people and to eliminate the force of religion in life. And they, when they say, of course, they say backwards religion or they say, quote, extremism. But I can tell you, what is extremism? Uh, praying daily? Having a holy book in your house? Like if you have the Quran in your house, that's a sign of extremism. If you listen to, quote, illegal preacher, meaning the government has to approve who gets to talk about religion and who doesn't. And, of course, the ones that are legal, the ones that the government approves, the approved ones, all have to, the government writes their sermons for them, tells them what to say about how to obey the law and be a good citizen of modern China. It's it's just a, a nightmare for anyone who believes in religious freedom. And this is happening to, yes, as you say, it could be well over a million, possibly over 2 million Uyghurs who are protected. So we're really concerned that um, the world has not reacted more strongly to tell the government of China that we don't deal with a government like that. We don't send our students there on exchange programs. We don't buy their goods. We don't invite them to international forums. The China cables uh, that was exposed the memo includes orders to never allow escapes, increase yeah, discipline yeah. and punishment of behavioral violations, promote repentance and confession, make remedial Mandarin studies the top priority, encourage students to truly transform, ensure full video surveillance coverage of dormitories and classrooms free of blind spots. The students should have fixed bed positions, fixed queue position, fixed classroom seat, fixed station during skills work, and it's strictly, this is strictly forbidden to be changed. So, you know, they haven't done anything worse than maybe having one more child than the government allows, and I thought they relaxed that uh, one-child rule. I thought they changed that, uh, but obviously not. Uh, If a woman wears a headscarf, uh, oh, that's extremism. If a man grows a beard, that's extremism. Some of the most innocuous things, um, if someone looks at a government official the wrong way, that's extremism. And uh, it, it, what these people go through is unbelievable. I, I just could not have said it better myself. Um, I'm really just endorsing everything you're saying. We even have with this new document that was just released on February 18th, direct records of a person's name, their address, their national ID number, who all their family members are, including who their children are, their ID numbers. And then there's a thing about reason for detention, and sometimes it is exactly that. Praise daily. Wife wore a headscarf, had a beard. It's, um, I guess people find it hard to yeah. believe, and that's why it was really important to publish these documents. 
and, and it just contradicts that shiny picture a lot of people have where there are high-rises, which is great, but you could have a high-rise and still have, you know, people have to get their heads around the fact you can have high-rises and advanced manufacturing and still be a brutal dictatorship. Yeah, I, I found that uh, I had pulled up the document last night, the Karrakesh, what is it, Karrakesh list? Yes, um, yes. If they have a religious behavior, as you said, just simply praying, if they maintain ties overseas. Now, how many Chinese students come here to the United States to study? And then again, these students, when they come here to the United States, they have minders. They have people that look to see who they're talking to, who they're associating with, what they are learning. And if it's not approved, even though they're here in the United States, land of the free, home of the brave, they can get yanked, sent back to China. They, they and their family in jeopardy, probably even placed in one of these internment camps. Certainly that's true of the Uyghurs. You're right. There's monitoring, and people have trained themselves. I, you know, I don't know how recently anybody's you know, reread the novel 1984, but it's true that after a while you, you do get conditioned. You can, a, a government can con- successfully condition people, even when they start out knowing their rights and wanting to express their individuality and you know, being angry at being controlled. It can wear you down for a long time. And that is, was relaxed in China after Mao Zedong died. So in the 80s and 90s, you had a lot more scope for individual uh, enterprise. And then since for the last seven years, since the, this new secretary general came into power, Xi Jinping, it's been ratcheting down the tightness and returned to this issue of mind control. And what I want to say about that is definitely every, every Chinese citizen is yeah, minded and they, they, just like us, we accept that some company has our GPS data so that we can Uber or have Uber Eats or, you know, online shopping, they can remember our preferences. Well, what if that were in the hands of a government that wanted to control us? And so in China, people have given over all their data. They can't escape. The difference with the Uyghurs, though, is that uh, the government calls it a, 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 um, well, to show absolutely no mercy. That's another quote from the government documents that were leaked. So it's a it's a, a further it's even worse than the kind of you know, monitoring that all Chinese people endure um, because they're another race they're another religion they're another ethnic group they have their own language they have their own memory of being a separate country as recently as you know the early part of the 20th century and so the party really fears that they are not really loyal to the party. Well, not only that, as they're in these concentration or these vocational schools, as they politely call them, they also use the slave labor. Absolutely. Yes. Um, we've got a, actually a very evocative little video. We called it um, in China, or for the Uyghurs, every day is, every Friday is Black Friday. Um, and that's been documented that the government has policies to Again, they're using this double speak, and you've noted some of that. They call it a training school, but it's actually a concentration camp. They call it poverty alleviation and finding people, quote unquote, jobs, but actually they have no choice. They're told you have to sign this contract, or we'll see whether you need re education. So, what are you going to do? You have to sign that contract. You go in there, um, sometimes you can't go home at all. Sometimes you have to, you're locked up in there. You have to stay overnight six days a week. You get to see your family one day a week, and you're, you're paid very little. 
or, or if you're some of the actual prisons also have labor in them, and so you're paid nothing. And then where do those products go? To Target, to Walmart, to Costco. And I'd love to list off some of the brands that are sourcing their cotton products from, from China that includes factories in Xinjiang, if you'd be interested. Wow. I, we should have um, a list of which products are coming out of these slave labor camps. That's right. Well, we know that um, for sure recently Costco was stocking some baby pajamas that were produced from a factory that had already been identified in the press and had already been put on the import ban list by our Commerce Department. Uh, and or actually Department of Homeland Security, the Customs and Border Patrol, the Switch and Tida. But others that continue to source there are H&M and Muji, Uniqlo. These are sort of more trendy ones. Uh, but the sources, as we know, China is the workshop of the world. Uh, don't make so many of these things, especially apparel and garments, um, here anymore. So those are a lot of that is in China shoes. And many of them, many of the companies say, well, we, we don't know where it's manufactured. And our position is, you really better know, because if American consumers knew that they're getting their goods and somebody is, is really slave labor, people locked up and forced to work, actually American businesses should be very concerned. No wonder they're being undercut on price. Well, you know, we've discussed this on the show, especially with General Spalding, that what happens is when an American company goes over to China, by China law, at least two members of the Communist Party have to be on that board. They must surrender their intellectual property. And once they do that, you have someone that has just decided to, he invented the newest and greatest uh, way to open cans. So they use the Chinese factory to manufacture it inexpensively. That way you can buy it at $9.95 on, on Amazon or when you see it flash up on TV, buy one, get one free. But uh -huh. this is slave labor. And not only that, once they understand how the item is made, they can copy it. And so they sell it. You're selling it for $9.99. You make a nice little profit. They're going to sell it for $5.99 and knock you out of business, yeah. and you can't do a darn thing about it. And again, so when you're I'm, buying stuff, not only just Costco or Walmart or wherever else, you buy it on Amazon, it just might be a knockoff made with slave labor. Yeah, it's really good for people to be aware of this. Um, it, it would be hard to stop making everything, buying anything. So one of the things that people do, a lot of Muslim Americans who say, I do feel... Um, really torn by this, you know, um, attack on the on the on the Uyghurs. Say, what can we do? So during Ramadan, a month, right? That's pretty much the same as what Catholics would do during Lent. Um, Muslims during Ramadan, of course, are going to try to have a small sacrifice every day, and they're going to try to do a good deed and give some to charity, right? Help the needy. So the sacrifice is, I today I will not buy something from China. So the point is, maybe you still have the things in your house that were made in China, but you will make a conscious decision when you're out there not to buy that thing from China. So it's just a way to remind yourself, I do have principles. I will make a personal choice for myself. Um, I will today remember that it, I don't want to be profiting myself from this miserable, brutal, uh, inhuman system. Yeah, because whenever I go on Amazon, I look to see where the item is being shipped from, 
And if I see China, yeah. I says, uh, no, I think I'll pay a dollar or two more and get the one being shipped out of Wisconsin or Texas. And uh, Oh, that's great. And You're able to keep that up. That's amazing. Ever since I started doing these stories on China and realizing what was really going on, that's when I said, uh-uh, no more. If it says made in China, no. If I see it being shipped from China, uh, no. And that's what the rest of us have to do. I mean, it's one yeah. thing to put sanctions on them, but it's another thing for we, the consumers, to make a conscious decision. And if the consumers do that, uh, we can turn this around. But I think that's know, great. And um, can I tell you something else that's happening uh, for by our government? Okay. There, the Congress is actually acting as well. So in the Congress right now, there's a, a bill. It's called the, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, and um, it's being considered by the Senate. So um, there's another title, actually, which is really great. It's actually the acronym for Uyghur, which is the name of the people, the Uyghur Intervention and Global Humanitarian Urgent Response Act. How's that for a nice acronym? And we'd love to have people who are outraged at what China's being getting away with. We'd love them to, to write to their senators or, you know, call the office and let them know that you've heard about the Uyghurs and you really think our Congress should act. Yeah, this is but it's not just under the new premier in um in China, but pulling up because your website has so many good so much good information on it. Um an article that was written back in on February 7th uh, about the massacre that went on in 97. And we know about Tiananmen Square, but why don't we anyone know about this massive massacre? That's right. That was written by my very close friend, um, Zubaira. She wrote about this massacre. Her own brother suffered right after that. It's just a heart-rending story. Thank you for reading that. It's called the Gulja Massacre. And um, this is just the thing. There are who are human rights defenders, or at that time, there were more semi-independent press and, uh, and, for example, human rights lawyers in China. Now there aren't anymore, but there was a time when it was more open. And even they didn't know about it because there's kind of a systematic racism built into the Chinese educational system. And so even a lot of Chinese people didn't know about it. Or if they did, they thought, oh, good thing that the government tamp down that rebellion. Those people are backwards, dangerous people. So what actually did happen here? Well, there was a peaceful protest. And uh, because there had been uh, police brutality, classic thing that you know can happen even in a very free society like ours, right? You do have always a danger and a concern with uh, state uh, overreach and, and abusive power. And so people uh, came, young men came out onto the street to protest the violence against some young Uyghurs. And at that point, the government uh, brought out the guns, which normally police don't even carry in China, and just openly shot people on the street, just like Tiananmen. Yeah, because it it was saying that the uh, bloody massacre was taking place that day was the beginning of a period of mass arrests, deaths, and disappearances. So it wasn't just a matter of shooting people down. It's just uh, arrests. People just never were seen again. Um, 
Yep. It's absolutely devastating. Do we have any idea how many people actually disappeared or died that day? It's unknown because, as you know, uh, those circumstances of government censorship and fear, uh, people were arrested if they tried to tell other people. And you have to recall, this is before the era of the smartphone. People didn't have a camera in their pocket at all times. Um, they, not everyone had even a cell phone. So the fact that as much information did get out is, is a tribute to the fact that information came out later. Amnesty International at the time wrote about it. Of course, in those days, the news cycle was a little longer. It took them about a week or two, but the news did come out and they continue to, to commemorate that anniversary frequently. So there is, um, it is a landmark massacre and look, um, nothing, nothing was done about it then, and the same government that uh, is capable of doing that and literally disappearing thousands of young men, it's no wonder people are a little angry and upset with the government uh, who live there, right, to know that there's this history of constant, a kind of a colonizing or colonial power police state where the lives of the people under your feet don't really matter. That is the feeling that a lot of Uyghurs have. Uh, and yet, um, you know, I work for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. My boss is Uyghur. My colleagues are Uyghur. And they're still saying what I'm asking for is to respect basic fundamental human dignity and human rights. Well, this is something that has to get out there because China is still doing massive human rights abuses, you know, because uh, the document uh, that was released recently uh, was showing that some 300 Muslim Uyghurs, Uyghurs and some 2,000 members of their direct families just by simply being a member of the same family caused them to be locked up um it's so in other words you're not just going after the one individual you're going to go after the entire family so whatever one person does the whole family is now responsible for right isn't that it's just a classic guilt by association so you can think back to really dark periods it feels very medieval um, but it's also like various communist revolutions, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Stalin, where they said, um, you know, we want to investigate your, your background, right? If you had an uncle who's on the other side, you're probably a secret spy. Maybe you work for the other side, and um, we're going to have to take, quote, preventive measures and make sure that we can control you, maybe, quote, re-educate you, meaning put you through this horrible stress position, lock you up for months at a time until you kind of mind condition yourself to just be an obedient obedient uh you know citizen of the new world so that guilt by us going after the whole family is a, is a classic uh tactic of terror and i'm really glad that you pointed that out now uh, just a couple of days oh, go ahead curtis yeah i was just going to say because we're talking about closed societies like china when you look at closed societies like china and venezuela and cuba and north korea isn't that like a, a, a good thing for the NRA, you know, to put out, you know, for our Second Amendment's rights? Well, I'm not going to comment on that, but it certainly is true that um, totalitarian governments want to take away every means of... Uh, a resistance, because these resistance people can't defend themselves. working together, yeah. And, you know, I think that the hardware and the software, right, the software is just as important as the hardware because if you're not, if, if associating with someone else, if you're joining a group, creating a, um, 
you know, like a lawyer support group to help people, if that alone gets you disbarred, you lose your law license, and then you, uh, you know, might be put in prison, administrative detention for three years, um, you can really break down the bonds of society where people could band together. And then actually you might have the opposite result, which is the only thing people can do is resort to violence as opposed to having the normal means of civil society to defend their rights and to uh, appeal to, to morality and reason, uh, or at least get a majority of the citizens agreeing with you. So for sure, people need to, they should defend, uh, you know, people need to zealously uphold democratic rights at all times. Um, you don't want to wait until you need them. And I wasn't really pointing to like a, a violent ending to, you know, these things because we have guns. It's more, more so that, um, having gun rights is like a deterrent. It's just like having our military, you know, it's a deterrent. We never really want to use it, but it's there if we need it. Uh, As as I said, you know, uh, makes, oh yes, go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. Recently, in GDME, but just a couple of days ago, they had a human rights uh, summit. You know, did you attend that, or do you know what the end result of that was? Uh, which which summit? The one in Geneva. The summit yes. for human rights and democracy. Yeah, that's right. No, I I didn't attend it. Um, did you? <laughs> no, I'm here in South Carolina. Uh-huh. I don't oh, get on planes good. anymore. <laughs> Well, you know, the, 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 there are the, U, the United Nations itself should be a forum for upholding civilized norms, right? When people think of the United Nations, every nation should be a member, and it should be for peace and human dignity. And if you think back to the founding, when was it founded? Right after World War II ended, 1948, peace conference. But it wasn't just peace. It was also fundamental human dignity. Why? They were reacting to the horrors of the Nazi persecution, of the Jews and of other of political dissidents, trade unionists, communists, uh, Roma, and the disabled, right? And the homosexuals, all these people who didn't fit with the Nazi idea that everyone should be absolutely perfectly in line with, uh, proven to be racially uh, aligned with their goals. And the idea was the whole world said never again. Let's have an international organization where every single government has to pledge to abide by what's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I, you know, I'd love, maybe you can, um, on the show sometime, have some people who know how to present that. It's a very legalistic document, but it's so fundamental. And every American will recognize what's in there because it's also American values. And the UN, therefore, should be the one to stand up in a case like this where you have precedents being broken left and right, where Uyghurs are being put in prison with no trial just for praying. Why shouldn't the UN say that is the kind of inhuman treatment of individuals that the world community will not stand for? But unfortunately, the UN has been uh, almost silent on what's happening to the Uyghurs. Well, we see that uh, the European Parliament did pass a resolution condemning that, uh, but it hasn't made its way to have a sister document in the UN, uh, which is a shame. And that was just that's uh, right. done and recently, back in December. Yeah, that's uh, right. So, so it's, know, it's terrific. The European Parliament voted on it, and that was a tribute to the hard work of of Uyghur 
Uyghurs who live in the diaspora in Europe who spoke up on their own behalf. And they used the democratic freedoms of, of the countries where they're very blessed to have received, to immigrated and to take great jobs or to receive asylum. Many of them highly educated professionals. Um, and so they were able to persuade the European Parliament. And, and the thing is, the U.S. Congress is very outspoken. Um, I want to sort of give credit. I'm trying to think of some uh, members of, Parliament, uh, of Congress near near you, but for certain, certainly you have Democrats and Republicans. You have Senator Rubio in Texas, and you have Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, right? Both sides of the aisle are very outspoken, but they haven't passed the bill yet. So that's a good point. How can the Europeans pass the bill and the Americans haven't done it yet? We're upset about that. We've got, a, we've got a dysfunctional Congress that would rather impeach a president than to do the work that they're sent, they're sent there to do. That's why, uh, unfortunately. Oh. But, <laughs> um, but I want to thank you for bringing this issue uh, to us. Um, one of the things I was curious about because uh, – I'm sorry, I've got papers all over the place. I'm not very organized at the moment. Here we go. Um, When Quint sent me your information, he sent some teasers without really explaining what they were. Uh, And I don't know if you can answer them, but he just put teasers here like China installs disinfectant tunnel. And I'm sure this has to do with the virus. What's that about? Yeah. Um, Well, I myself am not sure what the tunnel was, but it's true that the way the government is enforcing a quarantine uh, is inhuman and can only be done by a police state and is not even fully effective and imposes tremendous hardship. Of course, this is a very infectious disease, so it's quite right that the government should take the lead in organizing society to say, really, we have to suspend normal life in order to prevent, you know, to protect you, the citizens. Unfortunately, Chinese government local officials, they don't know what to do. They're not public health experts. There is no free flow of information. And so the main thing they do is go with gusto and lock down neighborhoods. They will lock the front door of an apartment building and say, you can only go in and out. Uh, if you pass through our little inspection bureau here, we're going to set up a table and we're going to take your temperature and you have to pass um, whether you're infected. And once each family can only send one person at a time. Well, uh, I mean, it's very hard on people, and it's a little bit unclear how um, how excesses are curbed, because there definitely are, is film coming out of China of people who so-called, quote, violate the quarantine, seemingly very innocent, and they're being beaten in the street by these, so that the, the police go so far, because there's no checks and balances. The real and I, this actually relates to the Uyghurs themselves as well, because we are getting now horrifying stories of people not even being given a warning, not even a few hours warning that a quarantine was starting, and so the the, the a neighborhood would be blocked off. The government will bring these like riot guards, these um, twelve foot high fences that they draw across a road, and they tell people you must stay inside your home until the quarantine is over. You know how long it is? Three weeks. Two weeks. And they didn't even, can you imagine being told in your house, do not come out under penalty of punishment, and you haven't even had time to bring in any food? And these are not like American garages, right, which are full of a big extra refrigerator in the garage or people who have, you know, tons of food. It's, so it's, we're really, really very worried. This started at the beginning of February. Here it is almost the end. So 
number of of Uyghurs who might live in Australia or Turkey or America are saying they're getting messages from people who managed to sneak out a text message that people are literally running out of food and nobody's helping them. Wow. So this this sort of obsession with disinfecting. Oh, go ahead. No, the worst part is, is with this disease, you don't have to have symptoms to be able to infect other people. And that's the worst part of this thing. It is very scary, and there should be very careful quarantine policies. And that's why these Americans who came back from the Princess Cruise um, in Japan, they still had another two weeks that they had to stay away from others. And that's unfair. You know, it's, it's unfortunate for them, but I think people accept when it's explained well, and then they have help arrangements. Uh, and the problem is in a, a government a place like China where the police have no checks and balances I mean, there's even a case where somebody was uh, locked uh, away in a house where he was visiting, and he couldn't get anyone to go help his child who was uh, left alone in the apartment for supposed to be for 15 minutes, and it turned out to be days before anyone could help. So you have a case where um, you should have precautions because it does have this terrible infection uh, even when you don't have symptoms yourself yet. But in the hands of a totalitarian government, it turns, can turn into a real nightmare. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, as a matter of fact, uh, someone posted in the uh, chat room that he's a prepper, that he has a year's worth of food and water and medicine, as well as, you know, uh, guns and ammo. And uh, they don't have the ability to do that over there. You can't stockpile food. And uh, heaven forbid if you ever got caught with a weapon in your possession. No, oh, absolutely. No, I mean, of course, maybe some people were prepared, but uh, this is a... In any in any town or village or city, there are going to be people who happen not to be ready to be locked in their apartment. So you see in some big cities in China, people say they're bored, but they are able to get food. Either the neighborhood government you know, helps arrange deliveries or one person can go out at a time to buy food, or um, they even get delivered. There's some cities in China have those delivery services like Grubhub or Uber Eats. This is not true in small towns in the weaker region. Um, and and so the the concern about you know I don't think most people have the economic wherewithal to to be a prepper. Not at all. But uh, Louise, it's been a fun having you on the show and uh, bringing this issue up forward to us. And I wish you luck on the hard work you're doing. Well, thank you. I really really appreciate your uh, very good accurate reporting. And we do invite people to visit UHRP.org if they want to learn more and get involved. Well, thank you very much. And you have a great day. Thank you so much. Check it out. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Curtis. Um, We only have uh, just a few minutes left. And I'm just debating whether or not I should end the show just a few minutes early, Curtis, because i got a slight emergency over here. Um, So I apologize. I'm just... <laughs> it's just something I, I've got to take care of, and if I don't, we're going to have a large problem here. <laughs> All right, go take care anyway. of it. All right, but we will be back next. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be back next week. I don't know. I'll let everyone know whether or not we will be here or not because we've got the uh, Trump rally next Friday here in South Carolina, uh, just a little north of me, and I've applied for tickets. 
I'm waiting to find out whether or not we're approved to get the tickets. I've already got a hotel room booked so we can go up there the day before and not have to worry about, you know, finding parking or getting stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm crossing my fingers. And it's a possibility. I might even be, you know, broadcasting from talking with people in the crowd. I don't know. So everything's up in the air for next week. But I'm already starting to book shows into uh, March. So that's all I got to say today, Curtis. Okay. Well, I'll see you week after next. Okay. And uh, until then, we'll save our ending program with uh, Gary Pecorella, Save America. Until then, I say good night and God bless. I'm free for this land I love. America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her or what matters most to you. That's why I stand for the plan and I kneel at the cross. For the friends I have loved and lost in that
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.